Landon. Have you ever been on another planet? I, uh, physically, no. I did once eat a brownie that made me feel like I... Uh, well, I on on another planet, but having a really bad time there. Oh, uh, okay. So right. yeah, so basically well, interstellar. Um, let me ask. Uh, let's let's change it then. Have you ever been uh, mistaken for something that you're not, and have to go through with something uh, with someone assuming that you are what you aren't? You know. Uh... <laughs> The closest thing that I can think of is I was visiting one of my friends from college in the uh, small town on the Oregon coast where he grew up, and it so happened that the uh, the a Marine Corps band was in town. You know, the, all of the armed services have bands, and so like oh they were playing at the. This isn't going to turn into a stolen valor story, is it? No, no, this is kind of the opposite of it, really, because they're they're playing, I guess, at the local bandstand, and like part of like me visiting my friends, we were going to go do it, and he had like he his dad or one of his dad's friends had set up the concert and was like, Oh, Truman plays the trumpet. He's in the band at the university. He should, he should bring his trumpet. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? And so I bring it. They introduced me to the guy in charge of the band at the end for some reason. And he just, his first question is like, all right, so when are you joining up? And I was just like, Whoa, 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 wait, 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 <laughs> this is not what, who here thought that, that Truman caps was going to join the United States Marine Corps. That is not. And I had to be like, no, no, no. I don't know what they told you. I thought it was just like, Oh, you're really good musicians, and I'm a. I like to play okay. as a hobby. Um, so but you, that, you've clearly never been. You you didn't grow up in the religious Middle West where uh, basically any potluck is to get you to join a church. I, no, no, I I certainly I certainly did not. I had I had a few uh, I had a few earnest youth group kids try to get after me, but that that was about it. I mean, and also I think the. Okay, well, well t- yeah, t- tell me, though, have you what, have you been mistaken for someone else? Have you gone on that sort of adventure? No, I don't think I have, uh, but I feel like it would be fun. <laughs> I, I would play it out for a little bit. Uh, I have, uh, the closest I got was um, I went to a comedy show once and met the my friend who was a performer, mm-hmm. uh, met his friends after the show, and we were all going to meet up at, a restaurant, um, you know, driving separately. Yeah. And uh, I met them at the comedy show. By the time we arrived at the um, restaurant, they had forgotten my name. <laughs> but they <laughs> It's so distinctive, thought, though. It. They thought my name was DuPont. And what? I thought, well, that's never going to happen again. Let's go with this. <laughs> <laughs> DuPont. How do you get yeah. to DuPont? For, is it just I, like, well, it was I weird. No. I don't know. I think it was just indicative of how forgettable I was at the time. <laughs> I, look, I, I, I don't, I don't want to volunteer a story that you told me. If this was in confidence, I can edit this out. But you once mentioned to me that somebody at a bar bought you a drink because they thought at a distance that you oh. were Oliver Platt. No, Pat Oswalt. Pat Oswalt. Oh, can uh, I, be- I dated someone once who thought I looked like Oliver Platt. <laughs> I mean, look, okay, it would be awesome if the reason that you were dating was because she thought you were Oliver Platt and you just went with it. You were really cashing in on the Oliver Platt uh, craze. <laughs> She's like, how did you, you, you haven't even been gone that long. How did you get time to film a season of Fargo? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I, I, I loved you on the bear. Uh, funny bones, not as much. Um, 
so, but I guess both of our situations, if you can even call, like, I was never mistaken for another person, just a different kind of me. I, I guess mm. that neither of us has really had the sort of, uh, the sort of adventure with it that uh, the folks in this here piece of cinema do. Unfortunately, no. Um, or fortunately. But that's okay. <laughs> that's why we watch movies, so that we can vicariously live through these fantastical situations. And and look, something that I observed in in this watching of the film Galaxy Quest, uh, a m- movie I have seen many many times in my life, uh, is that they're it does they're not having fun a lot of the time. A lot of the time, they are in genuine terror and fear for yes. their lives. It is not it, very little of this is an aspirational experience. <laughs> I. I cannot wait to talk about this movie. Obviously, th- this movie has been hanging large over our podcast since the beginning. Yes. And it feels fit that this is the last one that we're going to, last movie we're going to cover, the last, uh, last, well, I get, we got one more piece of home improvement that we're going to cover, but yeah, that is going to be rehashing a lot of old stuff. This yeah. is the last thing, big, chunky thing that we're going to be covering. <laughs> Uh, big and thick it thing. feels it feels fitting. Oh, it, it absolutely does. It is a it is a very high note uh, that we're ending on I, here, and I I couldn't be I couldn't be happier to do it. I have been actively pumped to record this podcast uh, since last <laughs> night. Since <laughs> April of 2017? Yeah, actually, I guess that's the... I don't know. I've always been looking forward to this episode, but then last night when I actually performed the ceremonial viewing of the film, uh, it just it just sent it into the stratosphere, Aww. so to speak. All right. Much like this movie. Well, I, I would be hard-pressed to think that anyone that loves Home Improvement hasn't seen Galaxy Quest, but I suppose it's possible. Um... Can we give everyone a, a quick synopsis of what if you can if you give us a, a patented Truman Caps plot synopsis and can capture everything that this film has to offer? I will be very impressed. But would you like to attempt one? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yes, I would. Here is a film that needs no introduction. <laughs> The washed-up stars of a long-canceled cult science fiction TV show are recruited to fight in an interstellar war by a race of guileless nerd aliens who thought the series was real. Bomb. Wow. Bomb. Well, what do you what uh, synopsize the 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 fan part? The the well, what do you mean the the fan part? The aliens? No, the fan convention. The, the like the fans who come to save the day. Okay. Well, they're look, integral. The, the, in, I mean, I, this is okay. Look, we might have disputes about this movie that we like, uh, and Uh-oh. and this and look, the, they the the stars of the long canceled cult science fiction TV series Galaxy Quest spend most of their time going to fan conventions and signing autographs for a passionate and committed fan base that really loves their show, arguably more than most of the rest of the cast, with the exception of the star of the show, Jason Nesmith, who played the captain on the TV series, and clearly that was the greatest thing to ever happen in his life. He is the only member of the former cast of the show who really loved the show and who loved being a part of it and wants to still be a part of it. All of the rest of the cast being a part of Galaxy Quest has been like a curse. It has ruined their lives in various ways. And uh, in the course of having to go on this adventure and save this alien race who thinks that they actually were space heroes, uh, they Jason has to mend his relationships with the rest of the cast. And okay, there's the, fans... The... <laughs> 
fan, a, 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 a super fa- the super fans of the show, a group of super fans of the show, yes. come to the aid of the uh, space crew uh, in the final act of the film in a in a beautiful and sweet and endearing way. I just watching this movie. We'll get into it, but like okay. so much. I, I think that that and certainly watching this movie and watching the companion documentary, uh, uh, Never Give Up, Never Surrender, uh, which is the 20th anniversary retrospective uh, about the movie, which you can get for free on Amazon Prime. So much of the conversation about it is about how like this centers on the fans and it turns fans of science fiction into heroes. And I, m- the emotional resonance for me is a lot more just in. these these actors in space Mm. having to deal with like real shit for the first time in their lives but you know it's fine we'll get there (laughs) okay all right well let's talk about some specs uh shall we before we get into personal reflections oh yes i think we already kind of have uh this oh my god i just watched the documentary and i've already forgotten how to pronounce his last name uh the is directed by dean parasol Pariso. Okay. Pariso. You got a, the, the T is silent. Um, yeah. Dean Pariso, who was mostly a TV director mm-hmm. um, doing movies and TV series. He, <laughs> I love that he did five episodes of Reading Rainbow uh, <laughs> early in his career. And he directed the pilot for Monk, I believe. He, was it the pilot? I know he, that was after uh, Galaxy Quest, but that, he that did. Was, um, yes, but he was he following two, two episodes Tony of it. Yeah, he I, well, yeah. The, the 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 pilot for Monk Landon, as I pushed the glasses way up my nose, was actually a two-parter, Mister Monk and uh-huh. the Candidate. Well, I'm going to push your glasses up even further by saying he also directed an episode in season eight. Oh, okay, okay. Well, so those are the two episodes. I'm going to push my glasses even further and say that the later seasons of Monk were pretty weak, especially after his first assistant left and they replaced her with that new one, who I didn't like as much. Oh, grandma. Let's keep going. He directed (laughs) episodes of Northern Exposure. Um, Guess what? What? He directed an episode of ER. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. I mean, can't be surprised at this point that, (laughs) you know, it kind of makes sense. Um, So uh, he directed one movie before this. which was Home Fry, starring Drew Barrymore and Luke Wilson uh, you, you, in 1998, so you, the year before Galaxy Quest. I, I've been talking a lot about movie covers that I walked past at the video store <laughs> on my way to getting the movie that I did want to rent, and boy, Home Fries, you were I, up there. I, my association with Home Fries is I had an acting teacher once who, <laughs> who was like traumatized the movie hit too close to home for him and he brought that drama into class and i've never seen the movie but i'm like every time i hear home fries i'm like oh that traumatized my acting teacher (laughs) and i it seems like a silly movie to traumatize someone but yeah i you know can every time i see home fries on a menu at a restaurant i always kind of like chuckle to myself and think boy what what if you your burger or what if your your scrambled eggs you got them with home fries instead of hash browns you just get a a dvd jewel case for uh for home (laughs) fries on the side of your plate Um, oh god let's 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 never watch home fries This this film falls kind of in the middle of his career, but it is only the second movie he's directed. Yeah. Uh, since directing this movie, um, setting aside his TV, which is you know curb your enthusiasm, an episode of The Tick, yes, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, Modern Family, The Good Wife, Grace and Frankie, like he he's still doing some big stuff. 
Um, Movie-wise, after this, he does a movie called... Um, oh, I guess that's not it's a TV show. Uh, he does Fun and Dick with Fun with Dick and Jane. No, with fun Jim and Perry Dick and with Leon. Jane, the unauthorized porno parody. <laughs> so uh, he does that, which was not a huge hit, although I did see that in the theater. Um, <laughs> then As always, he he, he goes kind of dormant for about eight years. Comes back uh, as the director of Red Two, the Oof. action, movie, the senior citizen action movie. I, I, guys, I had, I didn't see Red Two, but I had such a negative reaction to Red One. It's just one of those movies that my dad thinks is so great, and I'm just like, Dad, like, why? <laughs> John Malkovich stops a bazooka with a bullet. <sighs> God, I, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool how. You know, 70-year-old Bruce Willis pulls this, like, 30-year-old woman. It's just great. She can't find any other men. <laughs> Gotta be the the old veteran. The last thing that he has done um, was a meaningful thing to me. We, we, this is kind of odd, but the last movie he did, the last thing he directed was Bill and Ted Face the Music. Yep. The third Bill and Ted movie, which I be, I'm nervous to go back to. Uh, but during the pandemic, and it meant a lot to me at that time. So um, I, I have a lot of love for Dean pa- Pariseau. I, I have ne- I have never heard I've not seen Bill and Ted face the music, but I've never heard anybody talk about it without mentioning the pandemic. It see it seems like it was an essential <laughs> uh, psychic balm for people at a very difficult yeah. time in all of our lives. Yeah. It, it came at just like the lowest depths of the pandemic and it was just like a needed, you know, blast of positivity. Mm -hmm. It's just an optimistic movie. And yeah, uh, yeah, I just, it was, and it it captured more than any of his other output. I mean, I can't speak for all of his TV, but I felt like it captured the vibe of galaxy quest of just like, these people had fun on set. It just was good times, good vibes, nothing, nothing but, you know, uh, positivity. So, um, that is Dean Pariseau. Um, yeah, he came God on. Bless him. I guess we can we can mention this now. He came on to replace Harold Ramis, and yes, uh, I I just want to mention that up front because I think as we go through the film, there are going to be points when I want to kind of examine how moments could have been different if directed differently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, so Harold Ramis, as revealed in the documentary, Harold Ramis was all signed up to direct this movie, but he- Deep object- in the development of it. Yeah, no, he was like, he he oversaw the production of the, production and design of like the models and kind of the look of the movie, a lot of the sets that were being built. Uh, but he really wanted Kevin Klein for the lead role. He wanted Alec Baldwin. They also reached out to Steve Martin. And when they cast Tim Allen, Harold Ramis was so opposed to it that he quit the movie. Which well now they they do a very good job of being very diplomatic of not it, saying that exactly uh, to to avoid any kind of you know <laughs> political discussions yeah but, but it's heavily implied in the documentary I mean it's like he, the the man basically quit his job to not work with Tim Allen we can speculate about why that is but he clearly felt very strong about it. The the other thing though, just about that about Tim and and Harold Ramis and everything oh, is, yeah. is the way he tells the story about it in the documentary is that he had gotten uh breakfast with 
Harold Ramis and one of the producers, and it's Tim. And he's talking about how he's just chowing down, eating loads of, of breakfast, like eggs and bacon and everything, eating so much. And the, you know, Harold Ramis and the producer are both, like, not really eating in a bad mood, presumably, because this is basically the meeting where he finds out, like, kind of, it's, you know, Harold Ramis basically says it's either t- him or me. But just the thought of, of Tim gorging himself on food, not really aware that they're, like, not picking up on the social cues that there is bigger stuff going on feels exactly like a scene off Home Improvement. And I thought that was very funny. <laughs> that That is uh, apt, I guess. Uh, art imitates I, I, life. I guess it's a good point to mention. I want to be very careful about how we integrate reality and the character of... Uh, uh, Jim Jason Nesbit. Nesbitt. Jason Nesbit. Yeah, yeah. M- Mrs. Nesbit is the name of the imaginary uh, girl that Buzz Lightyear is having tea with in Toy Story. Jason Nesmith is the name of the actor that he plays in the movie. Got it. Yeah, because uh, there are parallels between Tim Allen and this character that he's playing, and they're hard to ignore. Um, mostly, it- the early footage of the actual show where he's wearing a mullet. Yeah. <laughs> Which feels like a wig taken from season one of Home Improvement. Yes, yes. There are the parallels are there, and I think that they wind up being his superpower in this movie. Um uh I don't disagree with you, but let's let's keep moving on to yes. some of the other specs uh behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. The writers of this movie, two credited writers, though I, I expect there are probably a lot more. Um David Howard and Robert Gordon. Yes. D- Interesting. What do you do? You ha- I mean, I have some on Robert Gordon. I'm curious about David Howard, though. I, I I don't I don't really have much on him. So the the what happened with Galaxy Quest is that the concept of actors from a TV show get recruited by aliens who thought the show was real originated with a spec script written by the writer David Howard, and uh, that script got in front of a producer at DreamWorks who really loved the concept and didn't like the rest of the script, and so they basically bought the idea from David Howard and then auditioned a bunch of different screenwriters, basically saying, hey, here's this concept, write me a script, see what it's like, we're not going to pay you because you don't have a a development budget, you'll do, you know, 40, 50, 100 hours of work or more trying to get this thing ready, but hey, hey, that's fine, that's how you get ahead in the industry, that's just how it works. Hey, you gotta hustle, I had to hustle too to get where I am, I'm not bitter about the way my career went, but... But Robert Gordon, of all of the other writers who they brought in, wrote uh-huh. wrote this version of the script that really worked, in which Jason Nesmith is um, really obsessed with the show and loves what he did. Every other mm-hmm. version of the script written by other writers who tried out had Jason Nesmith being like Leonard Nimoy and like, you know, oh, I hated playing this character. I hate that I'm associated with this. But Robert Gordon's one of his many great strokes of genius as a writer was to be like, no, the captain is the only one who misses it. The captain is the only one who relishes being associated yeah. with the role. Yeah. Maybe the, the early saving grace of, of the movie. Yes. Uh, there, there, and I can't wait to talk about how the, the alchemy of this movie. Oh boy. I, we're going to hash that open, but just one of many minuscule decisions that, contribute to what I feel is like every movie that's made that if a movie can get from, you know, a writer's brain to an audience's eyes is a small miracle. Mm -hmm. The fact that this movie was made, but works 
is maybe a mid-sized miracle. I mean, it, it's not like walking on water, but it, I mean, it's it's pretty big up there. It, it's it, no, I I I feel the same way. I think it's it's as big as walking on water. I think it's as big as just life evolving on Earth, <laughs> like that that. That just like all the perfect confluence of factors of good, talented people being in all of the right roles, plus the morons at the studio not meddling during production and then their meddling somehow not ruining the movie in post-production is it's just it's like lightning striking seven times in the same place. And not that one dude who got struck by lightning seven times. I think he had his own thing going on. (laughs) So David Howard... uh the the original spec script writer only did one other thing it was uh written called trek the movie mm. um and it was in 2018 so near 20 uh years later um and it looks like just kind of a, a small indie thing um I, which i haven't seen or heard anything of but you know good for him that he's still out there working i i ho- i really hope that, like i feel bad for david howard because they call him out by name in the movie and basically everyone says like yeah, so he wrote this script with one interesting idea in it. We didn't like the rest of it. We tossed out everything he did. <laughs> and so, A, I, David Howard, I, I really hope that in the way that the option agreement worked out that you get a cut of residuals on this movie because, damn it, you came up with a good concept. Um, actually, I guess that's my main thing. I just hope that he got paid really well. And also, I okay. salute you. Way to, go, way to go having a good concept. Apparently, nothing else made it in the movie. But, hey, coming up with one good concept is very difficult. Uh... And, you know, if there's any advice you have to give to writers in the industry, it's to never give up and never surrender. Uh, no, my my uh, advice is to immediately give up and start working in advertising where the paychecks are on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's talk about Robert Gordon, the actual uh, final writer of this. Uh, he wrote the Harold Ramis, uh, Harold Ramis draft. And I'm surprised that uh, they they kept him for, you know, the the Dean Pariseau draft uh version yeah usually you get a different director coming in there's gonna be a different writer maybe it's because it was so late in the process and so much had been developed from the script that they didn't but yeah i think the whole reason that they that dave pariso showed up was just like this whole thing is going to collapse if we don't have a director immediately so let's get this let's get this dude who's directed one other movie like a year ago just he's there let's get him in like he's not yeah. he's not the guy who's coming in being like i'm going to bring in my own writer and put my stamp on and it's just like we need we need you to land the the spaceship uh yeah. mr pariso it's it's already it's already scraped against the side of the thing yes um, well, we're, it's, okay. it's coming too fast out of the black hole and we need to use our voxes for uh radio uh radio transmission and roman candles for visual confirmation Robert Gordon uh, has only written six things to this day. Uh, before this, the uh, two years before this, wrote a movie that this is a box cover for me. Addicted to Love. Mm-hmm. Um, Meg Ryan, Matthew Broderick, two other people. <laughs> that I, I can never remember who they are. I'm sure they're big, though. Um, uh, Griffin Dunn and Kelly Preston. Oh, God, I love Griffin Dunn. Um, Not enough to remember he's in Addicted to Love, evidently. Well, I haven't seen Addicted to Love, so it's hard to say. But mm. uh, so that's he only did that before Galaxy Quest. Um, but then, you know, off the success of Galaxy Quest is brought on to do the sequel to Men in Black. Yep, which is also a huge hit. Big uh, money, big money. Then he gets uh, pushed to work with Jim Carrey on the series, a series of unfortunate events in two thousand four. Yeah. 
And I don't I remember that movie being pushed hard. I don't think it did well. I don't remember, but then he didn't work for 15 years or at least uh, have a credited uh, you know, thing on IMDb. Well, he was he was an associate producer on Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, which Ooh, feels I love that movie. You know, it feels the most thematically like Galaxy Quest out of yeah. all of them. I on, I only saw it the once in theaters, but and I think it's a movie with flaws, but at the same time I really respect it just doing a thing, you know? And yeah. And, yeah. I remember walking out of the theater uh of that telling the person I was with, I'm like, I either loved or hated that movie. And I <laughs> over the years have decided I think I just fucking love that movie. It, you know, so much better to have that reaction to a movie than the reaction we so often do on this podcast, where it's like, I'm not going to remember this in 25 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't watch that movie often. I've maybe seen it three times, but it it holds a lot of weight in my head. Like, I feel like I remember a lot of it than I do most movies. That puts you in the top 1% of Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow watchers worldwide. I would wager that by virtue of having seen it three times since 2004, you have watched it more than screenwriter and associate producer Robert (laughs) Gordon. Okay. Um, I just, here's what I want to do to to finalize these specs here uh, and the behind the scenes things. Um, We got a pretty stacked cast. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of them, I want to go through... A few of them, uh, where they were in their careers, uh, but there are a few like Sam Rockwell, yeah. uh, Sam Oof. Academy Award winning Rockwell, Sammy. yeah, uh, not Van. Of one course. of his very early films, Justin yeah. Long. I think it is his first film. It, yeah, it's his debut. Then there are some of the other actors like uh, Enrico Colantoni, <sighs> who puts in the best performance of the movie. Uh, he should be top build, and his and his career. <laughs> should have just gone thermonuclear after this. I, I want to carve out a special space when we get to when we get to Mathisar to talk about him. Oh, um, so I'm not going to cover him here, but I want to talk about where this movie uh, fell in the careers of Sigourney Weaver, uh, Goat, uh, Alan Rickman, mm-hmm. and uh, Tony Shalhoub. Yes, uh, who later went on to play a certain obsessive compulsive detective uh, named Adrian Monk. Uh, he did? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Don't know if you watched the Emmys at all in the early 2000s, but my boy was up there. I'm sorry. Hey, hey, everybody. Uh, the way that Landon grew up with, like, G.I. Joe and, um, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, well, that for me was Monk, uh, if you want to just get <laughs> a sense for what it was like hanging out with me in middle school. Uh, okay, Sigourney Weaver, let's start with her. Um, we know her start, right? Yes. Woody Allen, Mike Nichols, yes, uh, explodes with Alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, does you know Academy Award winning films? She does big blockbusters like Ghostbuster, uh, Ghostbusters, <laughs> Ghostbusters. Um, yeah, yeah. She's all over the place uh, doing just amazing work through the eighties, and then in the nineties, uh, like so many actresses, uh, takes a turn not uh, not of her own accord i guess but take some chances you know she's she's entering into a different phase of how hollywood views women which is gross and unfair oh that's on her for deciding to get older i mean come on the 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 alternative was right there (laughs) stop aging sick thing is like she's not even that old and uh yeah so uh she does dave with kevin klein who we will talk about um she does uh uh 
that was in 93. Mm-hmm. Then she does a couple of underground things or kind of off the beaten path things. Uh, uh, Death and the Maiden, uh, Copycat. I remember that being pushed real hard. Yeah. Um, Snow White, A Tale of Terror is a movie I've wanted to see forever. That that sounds like a movie that would get released now, you know, like the the, the same way that they tried to make like an entire franchise yes, out of I the know. Nutcracker or like they, they were really pushing Alice in Wonderland as like a four part series. Uh, she does. A, one of my all time favorite movies uh, is in 1997. She hops back into the academy. She's like become a supporting player by this point, which is mm, sad, but sad. She's so good at character work. Um she plays Janie Carver in The Ice Storm, mm, directed mm-hmm. by Ang Lee, also starring Kevin Klein. <laughs> and uh, then she does Alien Resurrection in 97 as well, and kind of does one or two little things uh, before she pops up in Galaxy Quest. I, I, what I want to say, I mean, she's phenomenal in this movie. She's phenomenal in a lot of movies. Uh, I think she's phenomenal in everything except Crazy on the Outside. I... I... Well, this is because watching her in the documentary talking about the movie Galaxy Quest, I, to just to just like my my crush on Sigourney Weaver grows every time I just see her interview because she just is like she's so appreciative of this movie. She is so yeah. excited to be talking about it. She seems like such a generous person, and it always puts me in mind of a few years ago. This uh, this high school in New Jersey did a production of Alien, their theater club, <laughs> right. and it went viral online. And then Sigourney Weaver like flew out to see their second show, like and was so, and she came up and introduced it on stage. And like, just, what a nice, cool lady! She's, I like her so she... much. <laughs> She kicks ass so much. Uh, and uh, I, what was it, last year, two years ago, uh, 2022, she was uh, still kicking ass in Paul Schrader's The Master Gardener. Great. And, of course, you know, in the Avatar movies, which are making the biggest, you know, mm-hmm. uh, box office stuff <laughs> in the world. So, I, I Look, I know that it's a tired out joke that everyone forgot Avatar, and I am led to believe that the new one was good. But also, I just, I... I keep forgetting that Sigourney Weaver actress I love is in the Avatar movies. Likewise. Um, so Galaxy Quest comes at kind of a, a dip and I'm saying that saying that Alien Resurrection was you know a hit even though critics didn't like it. Mm. Uh, but following this I, I know Galaxy Quest didn't like make the bump to the actors that it maybe should have. Um, the, a lot of people from it kind of continued to be successful and get big, yeah. but it just didn't really happen because of Galaxy Quest. It happened because right. all these actors are great. Maybe Gal- maybe part of why Galaxy Quest is great is because it just happened to catch a bunch of great actors on the upswing. And that that's what I want to... Well, not even... Uh, so a lot of them on the upswing, and they become big people like Sam Rockwell, but I feel like Sigourney Weaver was an icon going into this movie, and then she just kind of continued in these, you know, where-is-she roles, uh, like... Gene Hackman's uh, The Heartbreakers with mm. Jennifer Love Hewitt. Yeah, um, yeah. And a movie I loved at the time, uh, Tadpole, with B.B. Newworth. Uh, oh. Very indie film. Um, and then popping up in stuff like The Village and Holes. Like, she, she just, she's never gone away, but this is just uh, an interesting... I don't know. She, she never disappeared from the mainstream, but I feel like we weren't putting so much emphasis on her. And Galaxy Quest is just this, like, 
hey, remember Sigourney Weaver and how fucking great she is? Yeah, yeah. Here's and then we went back reminder. to just kind of going, is she, isn't she, where is she, what's she, what's she up to? Yeah, yeah, Let, let's let's check in on old Sigourney. Let's have her pop in and be somebody's mom. <laughs> All right, I want to go to Tony Shalhoub real quick. Uh, he's not as established as the rest of the people. Monk is still on the horizon for him, but he's <laughs> been doing, uh, you know, obviously there was Wings. yes. Uh, that was that was big, and he's been doing these little tiny bit part character roles, uh, going back to the eighties. You know, stuff like um, Adam's Family Values. He was in Barton Fink. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, Big uh, Night, of course. Yeah, Big Big Night, The Imposters, also. Uh, yep. Yeah, IQ, Quick Change, uh, an episode of Frasier, but yeah, one hundred forty-four ah, yes. episodes of Wings, and uh, I think. I probably knew him most uh, from Men in Black going into this uh, oh, from yeah. 1997 when he played that uh, was it a pawn shop owner. Wait, are we, are we, that was that was him and not? Yes, that was yeah. Okay, that was Tony Shalhoub. I'm sorry, I keep thinking. Wait, no, that was John Turturro in 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 that. But no, it was it was Tony Shalhoub. It was. Um, but he had a string of things right in a row here that hit me at the right time. So Men in Black, 1997, Gattaca, 1997, oh, yeah. where I felt super smart. And then A Life Less Ordinary, Danny Boyle movie with uh, Ewan McGregor and Cameron Diaz. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, those were all right in my wheelhouse in 1997. Yeah, yeah. And and. Um, and he and mm-hmm. Monk was right in my wheelhouse in like 2003. So he was going from, you know, he was <laughs> reaching a point of maximum significance in both of our lives. Yeah, exactly. He just was a constant presence. Uh, I feel like through my my late teenage years and early 20s. And I just once I was going to the movies all of the time, then I'm like, oh, yeah, Tony Shalhoub. Uh, you know, so he does Galaxy Quest. And I think that kind of elevates his uh, he puts in such a strange interesting performance in this movie <laughs> which which I, I, like i think it yeah. get, it gets better the more i watch it this time yes. i mean i was look i i i was laughing throughout cuz this movie is great but like i really zeroing in on him honing in on him watching what he's doing a, a part that even by the crew's own admission is kind of underwritten he does so much with just being sort of quietly weird in the background i one yeah. of one of my favorite things to have in a movie is one character who's kind of just always eating and seems checked out i think that that's never not good <laughs> so brad pitt uh, yeah brad pitt in oceans 11 and tony shalhoub in this who takes brad a... pitt in everything he's in <laughs> but he you know t- tony tony shalhoub bringing a bag of snacks into space uh, or onto the <laughs> rock planet is it's it's so it's it's really it, yeah he he makes he makes such a meal out of this that would this would be a part that would vanish into the background for another actor yes yeah uh, so then he goes on to do after Galaxy Quest. Um, you know, between Galaxy Quest and Monk, he's still doing movies. Sometimes he's headlining them in like Thirteen Ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, he appears in another Coen Brothers movie, The Man Who Wasn't There. Uh, he plays. <laughs> we talked about this movie recently, Life or Something Like It, with Angelina Jolie. <laughs> yeah, he plays the he plays the uh, homeless guy who tells yeah, her she's gonna die. Prophet. Yep, yep. <laughs> when are we gonna watch uh, Life or Something Like It for the podcast? It keeps coming he, up. He pops up in Men in Black 2, Spy Kids 2, does a voice in Cars, and then, you know, we know the story of Monk and oh, the, story. the million million things that uh, he's done since. Yes, including uh, an upcoming Monk sequel movie in which Monk tackles oh, the aftermath of COVID. Oh, it's out? 
I think it's out. I, I, I have, I've not seen it because I'm frankly, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how I kind of want monk to be this beautiful thing in my memory. I, I don't know yeah, if I want why it. Not? I don't know if I, I don't know if we still need monk. Yeah. Keep it there. Yeah. Um, no one's forcing you. All right. I know we're getting along with our specs, uh, but we got to talk just about Alan Rickman. <sighs> we got to talk about Alan Rickman. So when did you first encounter Alan Rickman? I, I mean, uh, what are your personal reflections on Alan Rickman? So my my I, I consider myself privileged to be a member of the generation of kids whose first experience with Alan Rickman is bad guy in Die Hard, not bad guy in Harry Potter. Because like mm-hmm. I've seen like one Harry Potter movie when I was a kid and just sort of checked out on the whole thing. So I have no I have no mem- like I don't associate him with Snape at all. It's okay. it was it was Hans Gruber. I watched Die Hard pretty early because my dad loves it, and I mean I think he is he is the he is the best part of Die Hard, a movie that is really pretty good. I obviously yeah. a movie that is great. Like he it is just his performance and the kind of swagger that he brings to everything, and and his first film role at the age of forty five, Die Hard. And uh, yeah, uh, so that that was my first one. It's not one. too late for me, Truman. I know exactly. You could you could start. I could be thrown from a building soon. <laughs> Look, I think that you honestly, I think that if you were a master criminal, I think you would be like Hans Gruber. I mean, I think you'd be the gentleman criminal, the the you know <laughs> cultured and and worldly uh, guy who steals things. Alan Rickman is kind of I don't know if he is, but I, he's the spirit animal I want. Mm-hmm. he's just sardonic and he'll say something so insulting and cutting, but not really mean it. Cause he'll do the exact opposite. Something super sweet for you afterward. Yes. Like I, with, with my closest friends, uh, and I don't bring this to the podcast, but you know, I say the things to them that I would never say because I would never mean it. Sure. If that makes any sense whatsoever. I, I, yeah, I, th- I think I, I'm, I'm not just scrolling back through our conversations to figure out if you're doing that to me. Uh, every once in a while I test the waters with you, but, um, I, I do it a lot with, uh, with some of my other friends. Okay, so, so we're not that close yet, is what you're saying. Only, only eight years of spending <laughs> gotta, three hours talking every I gotta, week. I gotta be careful of your, your sensitive disposition. Uh, th- this um, is true, this is true. <laughs> us, so, us kids yeah. who grew up on Monk are made of, of weaker stuff than you Ninja Turtle kids. This is, uh, gonna <laughs> surprise you, I think. My first experience with Alan Rickman, <laughs> I was terrified of violence as a kid. I was the mm. exact opposite mm-hmm. of you. Yeah. I avoided action movies, anything bloody. Nom, 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 I nom, didn't. Nom. I couldn't do it Loved for a them. long, long time. Yeah. And so the action I could get could only go up to PG-13. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so this movie then... <laughs> uh, I was first introduced to Alec Rick, or Alan Rickman uh, through Robin Hood, the Prince of Thieves. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a, the Sheriff of Nottingham. That's a great role. He's really good in that. My mom loved Kevin Costner, loves Kevin Costner. That movie was just, that was a big deal movie. I don't know, when I was growing up for some reason, 1991. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting that I was introduced to Alan Rickman and Tim Allen in the same year. <sighs> <laughs> that was that was the, your your great loss of innocence, really. <laughs> but then he would do like adult movies that just you know I didn't experience until I was much older. Uh, 
I think Dogma was probably the mm, next one that I saw. Dog man, that was a that was a great. I'm not going to say that was a great movie. That was a movie that was huge for me that I watched a lot as an atheist yes, kid. Likewise. Couldn't get enough. Uh, but yeah, his, him in that perfect, perfect casting. So I saw Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That's what I grew up with. And then probably around 1997, I probably saw Die Hard when I was starting to watch action films. And then came Dogma and then Galaxy Quest. So Galaxy Quest is pretty early on in my Alec Rickman, you know. A- uh, Alan Rickman. Imprint. What, did I, what do I keep saying, Alec? You, you said Alec Alec Rickman, yeah. So I'm, I don't know if it's like some bastard child of Alec Baldwin and Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. I'm just I'm Truman. I'm 42. My my brain is deteriorating. I I, under, um, I understand. Well, listen. I, Alec Rickman's brain had deteriorated for three more years before he was cast as as Hans Gruber. So you have a long way to go. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, so yeah. Um, and then I I the I, Harry Potter movies. I was old enough. That they, you know, weren't part of my childhood, but they, I did see them all in the theater. I enjoyed them all very much. And, you know, that's, you know, so I, I had a, a pre Harry Potter, Alec Rickman base, you know, Alan foundation. Rickman. Did I dollar, say Alec again? D- d- dollar in the jar. You know what? You know, you say, you, what the fuck? <laughs> I love Alan Rickman. I mean, and I keep calling him Alec. Are you, are you, are you seeing another uh, famed actor uh, behind Alec, Alan Rickman's back that you're, you know, you're feeling guilty about it and it's coming out? Listen, for every successful Alan Rickman, there stands an Alec Rickman. He, he, he stands on the, he stands on the shoulders of giants and that is a very tall man named Alec Rickman. <laughs> Mom, um, can we have Alan Rickman? We have Alan Rickman at home and then it's just a big old jar of Alec Rickman. <laughs> So I one last thing I want to say uh, yeah. is my partner and his uh, her dad are very very big into Harry Potter. Yeah. And so over the Thanksgiving holiday um we went and saw the last 3 Harry Potter movies in the theater uh which I'd seen them in the theater previously but mm-hmm. so I I was kind of brought back into his Snape performance and it is the biggest <laughs> i i love it so much and mm-hmm. i don't mean any of this to be derogatory but it is the hammiest uh biggest performance scenery chewing performance that there is i've never seen an actor extend their lines just by uh uh making every single vowel as long as and elastic as they possibly can uh <laughs> yeah just really putting so many pauses between the words too Harry Potter. And, and, and enhancing that is the knowledge that Alan Rickman knew exactly what he was doing. It was just like, yes. this bullshit. <laughs> like, just, just, let's watch them tell me to stop. It's not, <laughs> not even, that shouldn't even be considered an impression. I'm not going anywhere near it. Um, um what, So, I hate that his last movie was the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, one. yeah, that's that, that is that is rough. You can't always go out on a on a good note. I what I I don't know. I mean, Alan Rickman is just incredible. I he's he's perfect. He is great in this. And what I love in you know what you know watching the documentary and all these other cast members remembering working with him that he 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 this drollness. Like every everyone has. Everyone talking about Tim Allen is saying like, yeah, yeah, no, Tim was great. He was always, you know, showing up a few minutes late, making fart now noises, and yeah, you know, Sigourney Weaver would have to 
tell him to stop making so many fart noises. It was so much fun. And then talking about Alan Rickman, it's like Alan Rickman was always pissed off to be there and he always seemed upset. And God, it was just, he was so kind and so nice and we loved it. So and we treasured it. Like, because clearly he, and just, he was always there five minutes ahead of time and yes. knew not only his lines, but everybody's lines. So even if he didn't like the material, he didn't, you know, sacrifice his professionalism. Uh, the, he affected this very droll persona and he, you know, and he uh, he did like the movie. He said that he thought the script was hilarious. Like he probably did enjoy making the movie, but just the, yeah. that was kind of the character that he played on set and everyone seemed to just get it and like it. I mean, I... I one of the producers saying the last thing he said to her on, on his last day was just, well, thank you. It's been fun intermittently. Uh, <laughs> I, I also, I, I want to call in to talk about Alan Rickman, uh, that there, there was a special, like a promotional special kind of a glorified electronic press kit created for this, uh, called, uh, the, uh, what the galaxy quest 20th anniversary special or something. And it's like, in universe, it's supposed to be all of you know Jason Nesmith and the actors talking about, oh yeah, being on Galaxy Quest and just kind of like it, they they aired it on Sci Fi Channel as promotion for the movie, but so it basically is some stock footage from behind the scenes and they got very quick like press junket footage of like uh, Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman in costumes, sort of just improvising in character loosely and kind of talking about stories from making the show galaxy quest and it's 20 minutes long i watched like three minutes of it and then realized oh most of this is tim allen improvising and it's really not great i'm not like it's <laughs> all of the things that I, he does so well in the movie are not in evidence here but alan rickman in character as uh as uh, it's dr lazarus is not his name but i can't remember the name of the character he plays in in character Alan Rickman talking about the process of being in the movie and just crushing it. Just like so he's talking about like, well, I was, I was in LA to do a play and my made, you know, my manager recommended that I audition for this show called galaxy quest. And I did the audition and then I got the show. And like, just, he, <laughs> he, he brings so much to just this thing that they probably, had him shoot for five minutes in a hotel lobby. I, I'm I'm in awe of the professionalism he brings to everything he does. <laughs> he agreed. Yes, uh, he just is a, a great presence. Um, let's get, we're we're fifty minutes into this episode. Should we start talking about the movie, or do you want to do you want to do some personal reflections? What do you want to do here? I I, I mean. Well, I, I'm going to do one one personal reflection and then we'll go. Let's both try to okay. – because all we're going to be doing is reflecting and talking about it. Yeah, um, okay. I, you know, again, this is a movie I've seen a million times and that I really, really love and celebrate. But w when whenever I sit down to watch a movie for this podcast, like I – and we've watched a lot of them, I kind of like almost automatically just lower my bar for quality because it's just yes. – I, I just – you know, A, it's so I'm not disappointed by what I watch. Sometimes I can be pleasantly surprised by a movie like Little Bigfoot or A Dog for Christmas that is, like, not good, but, like, better than I expected in certain ways, and I can pick out certain things that I like. And so sitting down to watch Galaxy Quest, even though I know that I love it, I just, like, inadvertently had my bar lowered anyway just by sheer force of habit. And so then watching this movie with my bar where it was is just like in Terminator 2 when Linda Hamilton gets obliterated by the nuke just like <laughs> blown away and turned into a skeleton except like yes except like in a good way except with like joy like i i 
I, I had more fun watching this movie last night than I've had watching a movie in, in a while. And um, that's, that's, that is my big reflection. Maybe, maybe that goes a long way to explain, you know, this is maybe my fifth time seeing this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw it in the theater, you know, enjoyed it at the time. um, Although I wasn't very discerning with my movies. Clearly. Uh, But I found myself laughing more at it this time than I have in the past. I've always enjoyed it. It's always been a solid four-star movie for me. But it's hard for a movie to get me to audibly laugh, especially one that I've seen before. Mm -hmm. And there were moments in this that really got me going good. And maybe, maybe it is just that my home improvement calibration has been completely thrown off. Uh, and coming at this in a different different angle. So yeah, who knows? Yeah. Uh, so I, I thoroughly enjoy this. Uh, clearly, this is the best movie we've done for the podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, hands down. I, I mean, actually, I would say maybe the only movie we, we've done for the podcast. The others are pod people trying to be movies. I I, I mean, look, it, putting putting any movie up against Galaxy Quest, uh, uh, again, which David Mamet listed four perfect films, and one of them is, it's like The Godfather <laughs> is one of them. I don't remember the other two. Galaxy Quest is number four. Like, this, this is, it, lots of movies don't stack up well against Galaxy Quest. It is rightfully generally regarded as one of the most perfect films. So, oh boy. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's start talking about it now that we're almost an hour into this episode. Yeah. Well, you know, we're only going to it's only going to be a one parter episode. There's no way that we would that, you know, uh, like there's how could we, you know, how could we extend this in any way? Uh, <laughs> so the the first act of Galaxy Quest, won't you? We start out and we get kind of a clip from an episode of the original Galaxy Quest series in the 80s. We meet the various. Great way to- Great way to start the movie. Yes, and it starts, by the way, in the, uh, you know, close-cropped 4-3 aspect ratio of, of uh, television. So we meet, you know, the the all of the cast. There's Quincy, you know, well, there's Jason Nesmith playing Quincy Taggart, the captain. There's Sigourney Weaver playing Lieutenant Tawny Madison, the, you know, his sort of cute second-in-command. Alan Rickman playing Dr. Lazarus, a alien who has a weird bumpy lizard forehead cap that doesn't look super good. Tony Shalhoub is Fred Kwan, the tech sergeant. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, so that is the main, the main group. And, oh, and of course uh, the, the pilot of the ship is a young boy played in the original series by Corbin blue, uh, who is Lieutenant Laredo who drives the ship. Anyway, we see them, we see the last episode of galaxy quest, which as the episode fades to black and goes to be continued, we, pull out into a uh, one eight five aspect ratio and see that, ah, this is the galaxy quest fan convention. This show has a huge star Trek like fan base, uh, loads of people in costumes. They're all very excited to meet the cast. The cast is all there. They're all really mad to be there. They're mad about where their careers are at. And they are mad that, uh, Jason Nesmith played by Tim Allen is late to show up. Jason does arrive. He's clearly the only one of them who likes the fan convention circuit and likes all of this attention. Uh, but then, uh, in the process of, you know, schmoozing with people, Jason overhears a couple of bullies who have inexplicably come to a, uh, fan convention for this show, talking about what a bunch of washed up has-beens he and the other actors are and mocking the whole thing. 
He feels self-conscious about where his life and his career is. He goes home, but on his way out, he is uh, interrupted by a group of seemingly very eccentric fans who claim to be Thermians, an alien race, who need him to help them. He mistakens them for a bunch of fans who want him to appear in a fan video. Uh, the following day, he goes with this group of supposed fans who... Uh, wind up taking him to what he does not realize is a real spaceship. He has a conversation with a warlord who has been systematically destroying their species. He basically starts a war with this guy, thinking he's on a TV show, tells him to start firing at this warlord while they're supposed to be in the middle of a negotiation. And then, on his way back to Earth, discovers, oh shit, wait, no, I actually was in space. Um, and then he returns to Earth, tells all the rest of the crew about it uh, at a uh, supermarket appearance that he's late for, and the rest of the crew at first doesn't believe him, but then decide, no, you know what, we we want to see what he's up to, because even if he's drunk, like, he's probably got another job for us. And they wind up all getting transported up to uh, the ship that is a perfect replica of the ship that they were on on TV. Have, was that too deep? Was that too long? <laughs> well, well, there's a lot going on. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I mean, you set it up uh, wonderfully. Thank you so much. Th th um, thank you. D and do you like that I said, was that too deep? Was that too long? And then didn't make any jokes about it? <laughs> Talking about perfect setups. Uh, but then you point out that you didn't make any jokes about it. I want you Let's to be proud of me. <laughs> start by talking about the fan convention, shall yes. we? Yes. Uh, we didn't talk much about the fans in the first hour. Um this is a okay part. Uh, how okay? Where do we want to start with this? First thought I have is uh, how authentic this fan convention is. In so many other types of media, mm -hmm. I feel like they would go to central casting to get extras to play nerds. Yeah, exactly. This feels like they went to a fan convention and got fans. Yeah. Yeah, there are some there are some people there in costume who go a little bit into the comic book guy from the Simpsons archetype, like the guy who goes up to Alan Rickman for an autograph. The first one oh, to say yeah. by Grabthar's but hammer. That's an actor. That's an act. Yeah, but like you know, mo by and large, most of these people are like, yeah, they're kind of ordinary folks who really like this old TV show. They're not like being played as a punchline, right? And it just it sets this kind of um, uh, sense that the movie i don't know like it, it creates a texture i think um that this isn't just going to be a mel brooks parody of something yes like there it it grounds it in the real world and i think from this very early scene of cuz it comes out of the fake or the 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 example episode of the tv show into yeah. this fan convention and it's like oh you're in good hands we're not going to be making fun of anything this mm -hmm. is like we're we're just depicting what it's like, and the joke is going to be on the actors in the movie. Yes, yes. And I, I think that that, that that is the great strength of this movie, which is, they, they call out in the documentary, is that in so many regards, this is, this is a drama. Yeah, like, it is set up and portrayed in a lot of ways as a drama. It so happens that the characters in it say funny stuff and get into ridiculous situations but the thing well, that's that's the the key to any great comedy is to play it like a drama yeah yeah and i think that's also and we i'm going to talk about this throughout uh, as as many hours as we spend on this episode that is why tim allen succeeds so hard in this role that is why he mm -hmm. 
does so well here because this is a dramatic performance for him and it's mm-hmm. not one with I mean I I think it this is he's playing the the role of an actor who was the lead on a TV show that is now ended and is desperate to ride that lightning and keep himself in the spotlight by any means necessary and is a tragic figure I think that he empathized with that in a major way and that it, that comes into yeah. why he treats this performance so seriously Yes. So that that comes all into like the the kind of um not the seriousness but the 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 care that the filmmakers take to root this into a reality. Um, yeah. And I will say having been to many fan conventions or comic book conventions whatever you want to call them uh in my day the bathroom scene in particular <laughs> was <laughs> so real where uh, where there's a line of like you know people in alien yep. costumes at the urinal i remember uh <laughs> two different times i went to the bathroom at a fan con- or a comic book convention where there were celebrities signing autographs and once i peed next to uh virgil the wrestler <laughs> and once i peed next to sergeant slaughter the the wrestler and uh also a G.I. Joe. And um, <laughs> I remember vividly, like if you, if you conflated two of my memories together, you would have the scene in the bathroom where I spent maybe a couple years earlier going to a wrestling um, event at the, at Joe Lewis arena, or was it the palace? I don't remember, but uh, screaming until I was like, my larynx was bleeding uh, at Sergeant Slaughter from the rafters saying, you overgrown G.I. Joe. (laughs) And then to be peeing next to him at a comic book convention, like this scene where the, the bullies, as you called them, are making fun of Nesbitt. Like that has a, a, you know, it might be a little mean spirited. It's like, who's going to do that? And who would, you know, actually be at a fan convention, but there's enough, uh, connective tissue there that I think it's, it's somewhat, uh, re- you know, realistic. Even though it does push the the you know exposition along a little bit. Um, well, I, I think. Yeah, I, it it doesn't feel like it's uh, superfluous. Uh, look, I, and and I I think great great points overall. But I and the entire listening audience is wondering when you peed next to these two pro wrestlers, <laughs> were there urinal dividers? Yes or no? Of course there were. Okay, okay. Are, are you are you just saying that so you don't have to truthfully answer the next question I would have asked if you had said there were no urinal dividers? Uh, I'll never tell. Ah, it's great. It's great. It's great. I we love it. We love a classic coming back right at the end, don't we, folks? Um, yeah. The the scene like the the bathroom scene where he is in the stall and he's overhearing these guys talking shit and like. Watching these words just hurt him, watching Tim reacting to this, and what what really struck me about this is, you know, obviously a great dramatic performer, but that he's wearing his captain's suit, and, Mm -hmm. you know, up until now, it's been like a suit of armor, it's, it's, you know, conferred this sense of status upon him that he doesn't really have in his, in his regular life when he's not wearing it, he's a hero to everybody, but then as they're saying this to him, he's kind of like reacting to it, he kind of looks down at himself, and in that moment, suddenly, the suit looks stupid, he's in a fucking costume, he is just as big of a nerd as all the other people here, and, and, like, and... 
you know, he is less basically by this. And it's uh, and this moment of emotional intimacy so early on in a studio comedy. Well, it, what also rings very true to me about it is that moments before uh, he is like on top of the world, you know, he is the confident captain, like nothing can break through the veneer. And it's something so small to his ego that just completely unravels him. Yes. That feels very real to, you know, the, the delicate actor persona that uh, I think permeates a lot of, uh, people's stories, no person specifically intended yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice, nice in general. No one, uh, no one's gonna know who you're talking about. Good. Okay, good. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really believe that. Uh, I don't really feel for him in the moment, but it, it felt like, oh yeah, I get who this guy is. Yeah. And, you know, something else that, that early on I, I noted is that, you know, shortly before going into the bathroom, he's tried to kind of have a romantic moment with Sigourney Weaver. You know, it, there's some fans asking her, oh, was there anything <laughs> happening between the captain and, and the lieutenant in this episode? And he comes over and goes, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of ways you can read into it. And basically <laughs> he tries to put the moves on her and she and she just, you know, says it, it worked when I didn't know you were a jerk or something like that. But she like to see. To see him putting the moves on a woman very much in the same kind of Tim Taylor cadence and way, but having her react the way Jill should be reacting, which is just, <laughs> fuck you, I know you're a well, piece they were of married. shit. I know they weren't married. I get that, like, they've not had, you know, presumably, like, something maybe happened in the past because he was a, a tomcat, but whatever. But just that he is in this position and, like, kind of his arc in the movie is that he's someone who's conducted himself a lot like the way that Tim Taylor conducts himself from day to day oh. on Home Improvement. But yeah. uh, but in this context, people remember from week to week what he's like, and all these people have completely written him off for his behavior. <laughs> so we're seeing, like, a version of Tim on the show who is actually facing meaningful consequences from the people around him for the way that he acts. And that <laughs> I, that's refreshing, and that sets us up for such a really satisfying emotional arc in this movie. Um, let's talk about... Uh the other actors before they go on stage just to kind of get a sense of, uh, I mean, you did a wonderful job in the synopsis, but like they're all going through their own individual experience before going out to this convention. This is old hat to them. They've done yeah. these conventions over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So Sigourney Weaver playing Gwen DeMarco, Lieutenant Madison. She's um, just upset that she is a, considered a sex object by the media and by a lot of the fan base. Her only job on the show was to repeat what the computer said. Um, Alan Rickman playing Alexander Dane, Dr. Lazarus, an esteemed uh, British theater actor who just resents that he was ever on this show. He's lamenting that he used to play Richard III and had five curtain calls. Everyone is rolling their eyes because he is always pissed about this. Um... <laughs> Tony Shalhoub is... He, he doesn't want to... He has a catchphrase. This is a big thing for me. Yes. Like, he has a catchphrase that he just... I'm always put in mind of I Heart Huckabees. Yeah. <laughs> like, warning alert, Truman. But uh, Jude Law has something that he said... A joke that he says over and over again. And once he starts to realize how phony it makes him uh, and someone requests it of him, he, like, starts to throw up in his mouth a little bit. Oh, great. Okay. Okay. Cool. Sorry. Cool. Sorry. Thanks, Thanks uh, David O. Russell. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that all the time, but I, cause I feel like I've been in that situation. I hate that sort of like pigeonhole. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 
I resist it so much in my own life. Um, How many catchphrases do we have on this show, though? I mean, I agree, and we're in agreement. <laughs> uh, you just you just but, busted but out. There... I'll never tell. Come on, dude. <laughs> there, there, there of my own volition. I'm not <laughs> being asked. You're like, you remember when you used to do that thing? Like mm-hmm. at that, that I would be very against, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, busting it out just to bother you—that's a whole other situation. What, what, one of our one of our fans is is dying, and you're consoling them as as their life is slipping away, and you just lean close to them and go, "I'll never <laughs> tell." <laughs> uh, yeah, but yes, his yeah. his big line by Grabthar's hammer, "You shall be avenged," which he just just yeah, it it it, it he looks so physically disgusted by it. Yeah. Um. Tony Shalhoub is Fred Kwan, who plays the Scotty equivalent on the show, the, the guy who runs the engines on the ship. He He's just stoned. His character is, he is super stoned is throughout it? the movie. Okay, I, I, let's talk a little bit about his performance now. Yes. I, I, this time I read it a little bit stoner. Uh, in the past, I've read it as just like a complete nihilist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I don't care what happens. Like, whatever, man. Like, nothing means anything. So let's just kind of see what happens here. Which is a, another beautiful read on it. And something that I think will also come up a lot is the fact that the studio, th- this movie was going to be R-rated and the studio first insisted it be PG-13, cut. I 13 wasn't it? Well, I, the, the, the original script was written as R-rated. Then it was like, okay. we're going to make this a PG-13 movie. Then it's like, well, let's make it a PG movie. This is going to be a family film. So a lot of stuff got cut out. And I like, th- like, so as a kid, I kind of had the assumption that like, oh, I guess he's just, he just doesn't care about anything. He's just really cool. And then like, as I got older, I'm like, oh, I think, I think there are scenes of him, I think, token up that got taken out. But the fact that he's always eating <laughs> and seems oh, sort of confused. Good point. Yeah. Okay. That's that's movie shorthand for this guy is high, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, uh, yeah, but he so he's not really but he doesn't seem really upset. His biggest issue I think is just that he doesn't have snacks in that moment. Well, what's interesting for that sort of character, I could see it in another movie being like more of more slacker-ish where mm-hmm. it's like this dude has a free ticket. Like Galaxy Quest, the TV show, has given him the residuals, and these conventions give him enough money to get high and just live the life that he's always wanted to lead, which mm. is, like, no responsibility. And they Boy. don't really set the character up like that, and yeah. he doesn't play it like that. Yeah. Uh, but that sort of, um, you know, foundation is there for that character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I... And I, I like that, I almost, I really like that the character isn't written any more deeply than that. Like, he, he still has yeah. an arc, and honestly, kind of a beautiful arc and stuff that, that comes up through through the way, but oh, so much of the characterization there is just Tony Shalhoub doing weird little bits that are all really coherent, and um, I, I I don't know, I, I love it. I, I it, it lends it so much more depth than if they actually fleshed out more stuff and had him just be a go-with-the-flow overtly stoner dude yeah um also in the back room is uh daryl mitchell playing tommy weber who on the show played lieutenant laredo the ship's pilot um mm-hmm. he is you know he, the he's kid actor in the the show yeah kid actor who is who is now an adult and he's just he's generally just sort of irate about the whole thing he's pretty voluble and uh, i think it is usually eager for an opportunity to try and punch jason nesmith but he uh, never never acts on it <laughs> and then also around emceeing the fan convention is Sam Rockwell playing Guy Fliegman, who 
introduces himself to the cast and reminds them that he actually was an extra in one of the later episodes of the show and is really trying to like be uh be a part of their their group and shoehorn himself in so they're all kind of meeting him for the first time and he's just he gloms on to them later this is another kind of writing touch that i thought was kind of great where when you're thinking of constructing this film that sort of character isn't the first thing that comes to mind. No, not at but all. But if you are a diehard fan, especially of the original Star Trek series, you know that there were all of these actors who appeared in one, two episodes that just, like, it was a thankless job. You showed up, you got killed, and Kirk saved the day and went back and kissed the girl. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, like, it's it's impossible to miss that when you are such a fan of the original series. So to kind of like take that shows the dedication to the material that I think makes this elevates this from just being a standard parody film. And you know what? It's the right amount of dedication to the material though, which is really, I think another part of the special alchemy here, because this movie very easily could have been leaning into it harder. And it could have been the actor playing Jason Nesmith doing uh, just a William Shatner impression. He could have just been yes. fully going like this all the time, and yeah. that would have fucking sucked. That uh, that is, there are a few things less interesting yeah. or funny right. than the Shatner impression, which I just did. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just take us on a, a little tangent real quick and and talk about <sighs> the uh, the alternate actors for this. Yes, um, to get your impression because I'm a little I don't know I, I I'm curious. Uh, I'm I'm actor curious here about these alternate versions. Yeah. Um, two people that were the closest to being cast at one point are Kevin Klein and Alec Baldwin. Yes. Yes. Correct. What now? I know you love Tim Allen in this, and it's you know the perfect role, and I think it's his best role ever. Certainly. Um, no so question. I have no complaints about that. But I can still see the movie working in its current state. With either of those two actors, and I don't know that it would be better, but it would definitely be a different kind of good. I could see it working. I, 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 I couldn't really see it being better than this because I think part of, I mean, and this is so just so part of this is so wrapped up in who Tim Allen is and who we know him yeah. as, and who, like, even in 1999, like people associated him with Buzz Lightyear, who ha- also has a very inflated sense of self, to say nothing of <laughs> and Tim Taylor. Yeah, and ca- like in catchphrase in this, I I think that I think Alec Baldwin would have been great, but it, I I think that I mean I think that pre Thirty Rock Alec Baldwin I don't know was his comedy as dialed in at that point I, I yeah that's a good question I, I mean know. he was doing Saturday Night Live for you know all of the nineties and I, late eighties yeah. and was killing it on there so he, he'd be bringing his sweaty balls to the role I suppose that would be something. <laughs> But I also just, I don't know, and again, this 30 Rock has so polluted my, well, not polluted, it's like, it's like good pollution. It's like the, the good nuclear explosion destroying the Linda Hamilton of my expectations of this movie and <laughs> the good pollution of 30 Rock. I can only picture him doing kind of very subtle, uh, tossed off one-liner kind of underplayed dry comedy, whereas like what this role demands is more overblown than that i don't know this is this is getting more, into more inha- the tim allen inhabits it a lot yes. more yes like on a on on a core level mm-hmm. uh that you're right i think alec baldwin i think would have been good but it 
wouldn't have been, I don't know. I, and you know what it is? I think it's the scene that we're not going to get into in this part, but in the next part with uh, with Bathazar, the the moment. Yes. That the... I think Tim Allen sells it because even Kevin Klein, who I I'm a lifelong Kevin Klein stand. Yeah. Uh, I I think he would have brought something wholly unique that nobody else could have brought to the role. Yeah. Uh, acting chops with physical comedy. Like we've talked a little bit about the limitations of Tim Allen's physical comedy. Uh, <laughs> it's good at points. Other times it's just flailing around that. I think there's a swashbuckliness that Kevin Klein could have brought a swagger that it doesn't feel put upon the way that, you know, if Tim was really kind of pushing it, it would feel, but I, I don't know that it would have landed that I, I feel like we would have felt Kevin Klein acting in the moment between him and Bathazar. Yeah. Whereas Tim Allen like is pushing himself just enough to open up his emotions and, and play that part that it works really, really well. Yes. Yes. I, I think uh, another great decision made by this movie is that they, I, if Tim Allen was doing physical comedy in this movie, it is on the cutting room floor. There are <laughs> like yes. er, early on on the rock planet. The closest we get is he, he does a couple of kind of exaggerated roles and then is like, yeah. you know, prancing around. Well, not prancing isn't the right word, but he's like, you know, he's doing like trying to be cool, tactical action movie guy. And then he loses his gun in the process and is looking around for it. And but he's start he's starting to he's I could see that there was going to be mugging, but we cut away from him starting to look for the gun, and it's it's yeah good wise yeah. And, and, but the rolling around is clearly like script written stuff where yes. it's it's playing on the sort of <laughs> I remember someone telling me uh, they after a long time revisited First Contact the movie and uh, was like man it's such a great action film except when they use their phasers because they really just dive down on their stomach and then point their arms out. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the phaser especially in that movie is one of the least cool looking weapons in a movie because yeah. it basically looks like a remote control like that you, you got to have a pistol <laughs> yeah. grip and a trigger for me to buy what you have as a projectile weapon i'm sorry i don't make the <laughs> but, rules yeah but but the rolling around feels very much like you know the the famous episode of star trek where kirk is on the planet and having to dive around like that that yeah. was stage combat of the 1960s yes yes very much um Okay, so so I mean, where, where do we, where do we go from here? This is this is a mess. We are an hour and twenty minutes in. We are kind of in the first scene. <laughs> right. uh, is this where we talk about the Thermians, or is this where we talk about Justin? Yeah, no, Long? I was get, that's exactly what I was going to suggest next. Uh, Enrico Colatoni is an actor. Mm -hmm. He is Canadian. His parents are from a country known as Italy, uh, much like Landon's ancestors, uh, and he plays Mathazar, the leader of the Thermian aliens. And he he should have been nominated for an Academy Award for this role, which is something I've said in jest in the past. But I truly mean, from the bottom of my heart, what he does with this part is incredible. He, you know, all all of his lines are in this high upper register, kind of like this. And he has a very strange cadence to the way he speaks. He always has this kind of wide-eyed grin plastered on his face, and, and he... You know, he and all of the other aliens, these are all things he came up with. These are all characteristics that he developed, the voice, the the mannerisms, the way that he, like, they kind of walk, like, they, each time a Thermian takes a step, they're kind of lift, 
whatever leg that they're moving, they also move their that same arm in time with it because they're the whole their whole deal is they're actually octopus aliens, but they use transmitter disguise things. So they look like humans to not freak out the crew, and it, it just every bit of this is such a deep, masterful performance. He originated so much of it. He and the other actors playing the other principal Thermians, and then they all kind of then taught all of the extras who play the other aliens in the movies these bits. He, he, he didn't just create his own role. He created these very fleshed out... He created out, an entire race. He created a race. He's God. He played God. <laughs> and it all works. It's all really, really good. It's all... It is all more compelling alien performance than in a lot of Star Trek episodes I've seen where it's like, well, our deal is we have bumpy foreheads. It's like, no, this is a... I, I, it's... Well, what what's interesting here? Because we didn't, we haven't talked at all about the meta ness of this movie. Uh, we've alluded to it, but what I find fascinating is these aliens. Okay, so they they get the broadcasts of the show and think they're historical documents, and so they have um, modeled their entire Starfleet based on the designs of this TV show. Their yes. their uniforms, their ships. Uh, to the point where they don't know how they work. They just know how to build them, which yes. is why they need, uh, uh, you know, Tim and his crew. Um, but what what's the kind of meta-ness of it is they themselves, they've assumed a humanoid form that looks like a cosplayer. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. They And, like, that when you first see it without, you know, your first time viewing it without knowing kind of the levels this movie works on, it looks a little tacky and cheesy. Mm -hmm. At least I thought so. Yeah. But it works upon future viewings of going, you know, this, this weird little bowl cut, you know, with a, with a uh, widow's peak that they all have uh, black hair. Like they look like fucking nerds. Yes. Um, and and they they are like yeah. they are written as a race of nerds. They have no concept of like they can't fight. They have no concept of deception. They are they are endlessly kind and generous and trusting and believing of everything. And uh, listen, let me be clear: the past ten to twenty years, n- nerds have been real mean and doing bad stuff. So I'm not trying to say that nerds are endlessly like kind and generous. I'm just saying these the, yeah. they are written as like the 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 people who you just want to like protect who are like completely yes. going to be downtrodden they are too sweet for this world yeah but the the layers to it is like once you get into the the earth fans that are trying to help them yeah it gets into this like idea of what these actors what the show means to people and like yes it was a fake show but it is real to the fans and the aliens it's actually real you know, but the aliens have assumed the visage of fans. Mm-hmm. It's just it's kind of this weird, you know, kind of funhouse mirror thing going on. Yeah, that I think works on a more subconscious level, but contributes to I don't know the cohesiveness and the weird reason this movie works. I, that and that is like an aspect and an angle on it that I had not even really considered. But it, like, yeah, it, it's. It, it's it's one of the ways that this movie that again was like just pitched as a family oriented summer blockbuster just has so much depth to it that you can come at from so many different directions. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about the about the Thermians is that they 
there, this is a, one of many running bits that are going to come up a lot for me. Uh, Galaxy Quest is incredible because it has a number of really genuinely creative and fascinating science fiction concepts, the likes of which mm-hmm. would make a great episode of Star Trek all on their own. I will call Thrown them out. just completely aside. Just, I mean, with the smallest hint of a nod to it. You know, you utilized, you know, once very well in the best possible way and just, like, throwing it away with a lot of other meat on the bone. We don't need it. We've got, like, four others. But when they... Sorry, go ahead. Just the the concept of Thermians, this, you know, what if there was an alien race that had no concept of drama? And they go kind of deep into this. They don't have the concept <laughs> yeah. of fiction. They don't understand the line. Deception between, and lies. Yeah, yeah they, they, they are only now just learning about deception from their interactions with this warlike race that's exterminating them. And they don't they don't know what it is to act or to tell a story that is not true. And that that is something that the Enterprise crew could wrestle with and try to figure out and deal with over yeah. the course of an episode. And uh, comedy movies are generally not that inventive with stuff. It's just like, how do, we, yeah. how do we get Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd into a room together and then just get 10 minutes of them telling dick jokes? Yeah. Well, and the, the like, there's a story going on that isn't, in front of us that yes. is amazing because the Thermians, you know, as you said, encountered this warlike race, they're being exterminated. They talk about the great war, you know, s- stuff like this. And there's just like, it can't be more than a two second shot when uh, they, it's either after they send Tim back to earth or it's when they shuttle. Oh, once the whole crew is there and they yeah. shuttle from uh, the spaceport to the the new ship. Yeah, when when they first fly out. Yeah, there's a shot of their planet, oh, and it's a like apple core. Yes, and all of these little debris fields, you know, of it being exterminated, like blown to shit. Yes, and just like layers of civilization, these little uh, things they you know life shelters that they've built into the the you know, cliff sides of the core of this place. They're clinging to the last shattered remains of a planet that seems to have just been bombed, like, by the... It's just remnants. It's debris and rubble is what they're living in. Yeah. Yeah, but the... the it's only shown in these, like, little tiny, you know, almost concept art... Uh, uh, like, if you were cutting back to the Cheers bar and you needed, like, the yes. outside of the bar or the outside of the Golden Girls house. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, two seconds on this, and it hints at just something so dark and so incredibly yeah. heartbreaking. This is, like, the, but, these six actors from Van Nuys are unwittingly intervening in a genocide that is being committed. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I was going to your earlier point of, like, the 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 deep science fiction that yes. is at the heart of this. Yes. It's not just an adventure story. Like... There, there is so much texture to the stories that aren't being told but are there, and and part of, I think part of the joy of it is that there wasn't a sequel, that there's not a fucking prequel series, that there's not a you know twelve episode Galaxy Quest show, because shining more light on it would make all of the magic tricks here somehow seem less good. Like the fact that it's just hinted yeah. at and they let your imagination play this out, and that we have not had every aspect of this written and packaged and sold to us. Yep. 
Thermians, man. <laughs> We're lucky. It's the it's this and Back to the Future, the two things. I it, but but man, uh, so, sooner or later, Robert Zemeckis is gonna die, and and rights are gonna get shuffled around. Like they're gonna and they're gonna strip mine it as hard as they've strip mined Ghostbusters. Uh, watch watch it happen. It's gonna. <laughs> The, the, um, the Ghostbusters franchise right now looks like the Thermians planet. It's been hollowed out and pummeled and just, <laughs> just, it's just a shell of what yeah. was once there. Good point. Oh God. Okay. Um, so what, what else do we, is there anything else with the Thermians we need to talk about? I mean, they, what, the, what about the eight, what about the, uh, warlike race? Okay. So I, I don't even know. Yeah. We know that the, the, the bad guy is Saris. I don't know the yeah. name of the, of the race that they are. I can't remember either, but, um, I just want to call out the, uh, Stan Winston studio creature design. It, My God. Throughout for this such movie. a, a, you know, movie that they initially weren't going to invest too much in. This shit looks good. It it looks incredible. Like both both the computer generated effects look look incredible. But yeah, all of the costumes and prosthetics that they do and the practical effects are are r- remarkable. Um, you know, I think Saris is a like like Saris is playing you know a one note character, but that note is played so beautifully, and also it's like you just need to know, yeah, he's like a Klingon or or whatever he's this horrifying Genghis Khan type you know warlord in space who is all about intimidation and making people suffer and and force and uh, you know, he, um, immediate, he's immediately scary, and also the the great joy of seeing, you know, in Jason's first encounter with him, where Jason is hungover, not in costume, and thinks that he is just on a fan-made set for, like, an internet video or something, just kind of blowing him off and saying, yeah, all right, start shooting at him, fire left and right particle cannons, 200%. Uh, you, <laughs> I don't know, you're, you're already, like... You you all have this sense of like oh man I'm I'm actually kind of scared right now like Tim do you know what yeah. you're getting into? <laughs> it's weird. It, it again uh, with the kind of meta nature of this thing is like in Tim's reality he's treating it as the alien race of the week. Yes. you know like you would have your monster of the week on these shows, but in the reality of the you know the movie it's you know this big antagonistic race that he you know is completely underestimating. Yes. But then in the context of the movie we're watching, it really is just the alien race of the week. So yes. it plays on so many weird levels like that. Well, and and what I also caught on this, on this go around is, you know, Jason has been brought to this ship, not understanding what he's there to do. Or not, or for, he understands, he has an idea of what he's there to do. He doesn't understand the actual context of what he's doing. But yes. what, something that the Thermians tell him is they're kind of walking him, walking him through the ship and, and, you know, getting him to the bridge is that, oh, you know, these are armistice negotiations or peace negotiations. They're trying to negotiate a treaty so he will stop killing them. They've got him to sit down at the negotiating table. And Jason, by virtue of not paying attention, basically restarts the hostilities that presumably billions of Thermians <laughs> have died just to get to this point of, like, get him to stop killing us. Which, again, is the is the darkness, the very deep darkness at the, at the heart of this movie that... I mean, we, we, I, I, I criticize movies. We've criticized movies before for having sharp tone shifts. This movie 
it works. Like, I don't know if it's yeah. a tone shift, though, or just that they make you it's aware not, that it's, it's down it's, there, but the tone stays the same. It's the, the, it's almost like a sleight of hand. Like, yes, I, I, it it's like layers in a way where like the, there's a real story going on and then there's the story we're watching and we're watching the story of an actor not knowing he's a fish out of water. But the real story is this genocide that's going on. Yes. And so we're distracted on first watch by, you know, the comedy and the lightness that the movie's playing it as. But when you watch it a few more times or even you know more than once, uh, or even while you're watching it the first time, you're like, oh, yeah, but what's really happening in the reality of this movie is dark as shit. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, this What's really happening in this movie that was PG and marketed to children at DreamWorks' insistence over the objections of the people who made the film. Like, this, this movie was going up against, like... Was it going up against Stuart Little? It was like really influenced by Rugrats in Paris. They were trying to get family audiences, and this is a movie about a genocide. I think it was going up against the Green Mile. This is a, well, no, but I mean, but like they were trying to compete for the audience that's going to see Stuart Little or something oh, like yes, that. Yeah, like yeah, you're not yes, you're yes. not taking your kids to the Green Mile, <laughs> like. Right, yeah. They're trying to create something in contrast to that. Well, well you see, Timmy, uh, Tom Hanks had syphilis, which was a sexually <laughs> transmitted disease at the time. And and when the guy grabbed his Phyllis. crotch... Yeah, no, 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 not, not, not Phyllis. Syphilis, honey, syphilis. Uh, <laughs> that was actually kind of a conversation my parents had to have with me after we watched The Green Mile. Anyway... I I think that we should probably touch briefly on the fans from the convention, Justin Long, and then we need to get into space. We need to get the whole crew into space so we can at least, like, get underway with this thing. Get Okay. No, I strike from the record that I said get underway an hour and a half in. We've been underway, but, like, just proceed the plot of the movie. Justin Long, let's talk about the fans. Yes. Uh... Yeah, this, you know, Justin Long's first film role, he is 20, playing a late teenager who tries to ask Jason a question at the fan convention after he is in a slew of despond after hearing the uh, uh, people making fun of him and the rest of the, the cast. And so Jason kind of blows up at Justin Long. Says, it's not, the show's not real. It's just a show. There's no ship. And uh, so he's kind of the avatar for... Trekkies and for fans of the show, and he's this fan who who Tim has wounded through his behavior, who ultimately kind of the the really big climactic moment, like the whole movie, the plot beats it it's not Tim fighting aliens, it's Tim repairing relationships with all of the people around him is how the plot yeah. moves forward. That's how he solves his problems is not through you know, brawn or fighting, but through making amends with people. And the last person he makes amends with is uh, Justin Long, who he has wounded here at the beginning. Um, my, look, my whole thing about the fans, we, you, were, you were talking about this earlier, about how, how crucial the fans are in this. And in watching the documentary about it, so much of the documentary is them talking to people at science fiction conventions about how much this movie means to them because... Not my... Yeah, not my favorite part of the doc. No, not not necessarily mine either. Um, but like talking about how important the movie is to them and how the movie shows that fans are important and that fandom is good and important. And I want to be careful in how I talk about this. I think Justin Long's okay. character is really fun. I I like I like his character and all that. But in terms of just this, the way that that fan culture 
the way the people in this are talking about this movie is so great because it celebrates fan culture and fandom culture. I think that it's fine to have things that you love and are passionate about, and I think that it is wonderful and beautiful if you feel motivated to dress up as a character from a thing or whatever, like I have Mystery Science Theater posters and like every every piece of artwork hanging in my house is tied to a piece of popular culture that I'm obsessed with. I get it. I just think that late it's hard for me to look at like, oh, this is such a heartwarming tale about fandom. When I look at the past, you know, decade or so where it's like fandoms have become so incredibly toxic. The the yeah. overt racism in Star Wars fandom that both, you know, drove Kelly Marie Tran basically out of Hollywood and that shit canned, you know, any sort of Ryan Johnson third movie in the in the series and that instead they made rise. Like, say what you will about, you know, oh, you know. We've got to recognize fans, and fans are so great. The the fan base, the fandom, essentially had veto power and rewrote the, the third Star Wars sequel movie, and so we got The Rise of Skywalker, which was just, which was trash. Like, and it's like, and it just, it was just, we got to satisfy every aspect of the fandom, and they made a movie that, that just sucked. So, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I am... After seeing what fandom has become and done in the last 10 years, I find this less of a heartwarming movie about how fandom is important and more of a heartwarming movie about a bunch of people who work together in a creative profession are able to make amends with one another, realize their strength as as um, co-creators, etc., etc. I now present myself for abuse. I'm not going to abuse you. I mean, there's, there's no argument about the toxic, you know, toxicity of fandoms. Uh, and I would never argue that. I, what I like about this movie, and I, I'm separating the argument that the documentary makes about, you know, honoring f- fandoms, like, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's a documentary with a bunch of people that are interviewed that have developed things that have developed huge fan bases. So, yeah. like... Clearly, they're not going to upset their fans by saying, you know, fuck fans. Yeah. Um, what I like about the the fan characters and subplot of this movie is that it is playing on another meta level that it's not just about the actors and it's not just about the show. It's about what the show means to anyone that encounters it. You yeah. Know, that, to the aliens, it means one thing. To the long-term fans, it means another thing, and that none of it can succeed without any part of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the f- and they literalize it by you know including the Justin Long and his his buddies as the fan the Earth fans being part of saving the world and being part of the show that has become a reality. Yes, uh, it's it's you know just like Tim is an actor on a show that finds himself in a real situation, the fan of the show follows the same suit and becomes a fan of the actor in a real situation and supporting that actor in a real situation by not supporting the show, but supporting what he's doing in the real situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, that That's what I mean by it being integral to the, the kind of, souffle that is galaxy quest um i, I mean i can get, get just long as a great you know comedic actor i have no qualms about him uh, you know i can couldn't even pick out of a lineup even watching it yesterday uh who his uh f- friends are in the film 
Um, I, I, are, but are, are you more, yeah. are you more fixated on the fact that when we see his friends at the end, they are all video chatting on the internet in 1999? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, it's playing off of Star Trek. So, I mean, they had video stuff going back to the original series. Well, I, I, I know that. I mean, it's just, it's just funny, like how well set up everyone is and also just how kind of natural it looks and feels and has felt for 25 years, even though yeah. the stuff well, that maybe, they're doing. Maybe is, that's why I didn't notice it. <laughs> like what kind of fat pipe dial up internet connection did Justin Long's family have <laughs> to be able to be just streaming live video? <laughs> It's yeah, amazing. they were the first fiber users. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, that, that's all I have to say about the fan base, uh, uh, fan subplot is I, I, I think it's I think it's a nice touch. OK, um, I think, it, you know, it's it's the weak link of the film for sure, but I'm glad it's there. Uh, and I, I think it does a lot. I mean, I could give two shits whether or not it's, you know, tipping its hat to real fan bases around the world like fucking whatever. But. Uh, as far as the narrative of this, it feels like a, an integral piece that, you know, I wouldn't want to take that card out of the deck. No, no certainly. I Okay, I, the only reason that I thought we were going to have disagreement was because I thought that you inexplicably were really wrapped up in this argument that, yes, this is a moving tribute to the power of fandom. But, like, yeah. <laughs> do no, you know who I am? I, I do I know who you are. give anyone tribute. Which is why it seemed so weird that you would that you would take that tack. Okay, no, we agree, and we are in agreement. <laughs> never, never give up, never surrender. Uh, yeah, they're it's, all coming back. It's, it's Im- the last, last episode. It's import activate the podcast thirteen. It, it no, it, it is one. It is crucial to the movie as a thematic, you know, screenplay construction thing. It's not like yeah, it's not an inspirational story. Great, okay. Um, <laughs> Tim has been taken to space. They they put him on yeah, and and he you know okay, let's let's shoot up this this you know fake alien thing and then he just walks off the bridge and is like okay send me home and you get this really like uh, again darkness bubbling up you get this look from Mathazar where he's kind of like wait you you are you gonna oh you're not gonna stay you just started shooting at the okay well goodbye uh, goodbye uh but he seems very kind of upset but unwilling to go against him conflict avoidance they they put him in this room they have him standing on a thing uh he's you know tim is completely confused what's going on and then he gets covered in this goo from head to toe and then a door opens and he's looking out at space just like planets and nebulas and is shocked and this is also a point in the movie when the aspect ratio then goes from 185 to 235 basically it becomes even more massive anamorphic it's a they they shot the movie in anamorphic which was technically difficult specifically because the director wanted to do this where the first thing we see in the movie is 4-3 tv aspect ratio then it's 185 when we're just on earth but then when when the main character realizes he's in space it becomes this epic film format it's a thing most people don't notice and it's a thing that most projectionists didn't set up properly to do and i respect so much all of the effort that he put into doing a thing that no one noticed <laughs> I, res- I but you do subconsciously you do if you like are us and know about this stuff i don't think so there, there's something just inherently cinematic about the two three five aspect ratio listen to any commentary or or <laughs> interview with john carpenter yeah, sure that that 
it just it feels more like a movie. Yes. This is the first time that we've covered a movie that Tim Allen has done in 235 aspect ratio. And I think it's the reason why it feels more like a movie. Yeah. I I think, you know, I mean, look, you can you could shoot they could have shot crazy on the outside in in 235. It would not have felt more <laughs> like a movie. A lot of other factors. You could just you could have just stopped that. They could have shot yeah, <laughs> crazy on the outside. They could have they could have shot crazy in the outside and buried it in the desert. Um, th- th- this, but so he's looking at everything and he's completely shocked and uh, freaking out. And they shoot him into a black hole to get him back to Earth. Yeah. But th- this is like a thing that I've been observing at this point in the movie is just there are so many opportunities here where Tim Allen could be mugging. Where yes. in any other movie he would be mugging, you I'm, know. Okay. And 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 I'm glad you're bringing this up. And none of that has happened. Like, again and again, there have been chances for it, and it's just, it doesn't happen. And here, when he is shocked and 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 completely blown away by what he's seeing, his mind has been completely blown by this, it, It's there's not mugging of it. It's just him looking in awe, and then it's him screaming as he's flying through space. And then the next thing we see, you know, we plunge into the black hole, we zoom out then of Tim Allen's eye, and it's just him standing rooted to the ground by his pool in LA, trembling and shaking and sweating and completely just like it like this is a the, phys- physical comedy moment that is played perfectly and not overdone and that is so rare with this particular actor. So I I'm glad you brought up that moment because of him standing by this poolside kind of like his brain unable to process the experience he just went through. Yeah. Where I I don't know that I would have earmarked this had we not done all of his movies and yeah, you know every season of his TV show, yeah, where and maybe it's just coming off of Joe Somebody, where his idea of you know mugging is flailing his arms in John Belushi's or uh, uh, Jim Belushi's face. Uh, that's 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 improvising. That's not. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, so. That's the Herald. This shot of him his reaction here standing by his poolside really took me by surprise i've never seen tim allen act like that before yes and i don't mean like he was acting it was like i i can't attribute like that decision to him and i'm wondering if it was uh if it was dean's you know direction saying i want to play it a little more like this or if it's just like he was upping his game because of the other people that you know the other cast that were on but like it's a moment that is again playing the drama of it yes. he's not playing it hammy yes. he's not playing it uh you know he's not improvising this moment he's playing the drama of my nervous system is shocked by the experience I just had. I, I have seen I have seen things that no member of my species has ever seen before. Things that I thought up until this moment were fully impossible <laughs> yes. are actually real and I am broken inside. Yeah, it's it is it is a it is a very realistic depiction, a dramatic depiction of a man dealing with a hilariously absurd situation that he is in. <laughs> I want to also uh, ask you uh, at this moment, because I, I think this is another one of those tiny little details that could have sent the movie, you, you know, like if you get just a, a millimeter off course, you know, after an hour, you uh, you might be a mile away from where you intended to be. Yes. So this this little tiny adjustment feels significant to me. There in the screenwriting process, we're going to do some writer talk here. Oh boy! In the screenwriting process, turn off the podcast, you are, everybody. 
you you are faced with the challenge. This guy who is has been blasé, he's been dismissive. Uh, you know, he's so caught up in his own bullshit that he doesn't realize he's on an actual spaceship. What's the moment that unequivocally he has to believe that this is real? And how do you sell that? Yeah. I just want to just crack that open for a second. What are your What are your thoughts? Well, like, so so if if I were writing the script, how would I do it? Or like, uh... well, no. The, I mean, the way they handle it here yeah. with the, the oh, you yeah. know, him standing on the thing, the lights yeah. go down, the goo, you know, the light turns on from below him, the goo goes yeah. up, and the big doors open. Yeah, like, I think it's kind of a, a brilliant. Like, they don't try to oversell the moment by having some character go, no, really, you're in a spaceship. No, look at this thing. It's, yeah, you know, like, yeah. they make it experiential for him, and it's handle. It's directed in a way that's like, first there's the, the lights go out, and it's like, mm-hmm. uh-oh. Yeah, they give him nothing. <laughs> and you can kind of, you you in that moment, there's, what's kind of fascinating is, so many given moments in this movie, you can feel both stories playing simultaneously where mm-hmm. in that moment, it's like, boom, the lights go out. You go, oh, okay, something's going to happen to send him back to Earth. But you're also like playing the other narrative of Tim going, oh, shit, <laughs> these nerds just locked me in a closet. Yeah. And now it's pitch black and I don't know what's going to happen to me. <laughs> Did it, does like, anyone know where are I happening. am? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> both things are happening at the same time. Yeah. But then the light comes on below him and it's like, well, that's unusual something unexpected is happening and then the goo comes out and you're like you know you're kind of going through it through his character and going well i can't explain that exactly and then by the (laughs) time the doors open you're like oh yeah you can't refute this tim (laughs) yes yes and it's it's like a curtain being pulled back too. the way these doors open and everything is shown to him I, no, I mean, it, this is the ultimate example of show, don't tell. The screenplay concept of, of like, don't have a character explain all these things. Just, like, show it. It's quicker and it's more impactful on screen. Uh, yeah. You're, you're totally right. Like, I feel like a movie today would have some kind of extended back and forth of a character trying to convince him he's actually on a spaceship and him saying no, no, no. Or, moreover, then later when all the other people are on the ship, like, there would be him trying to convince them that they're in space. No, no, no. Everybody just finds out immediately, has their psyche shattered by it, and then... And never fully recovers. These people are all kind of traumatized throughout. I, well, let, let's let's cut real well, quick too, because hang on. Hang on uh, but before before we cut real quick, what just just one quick thing while we're on the goo and him getting fired into the black hole, the the concept of a getting transported through space by like a goo that covers you that allows you to be pressurized and still be able to breathe, uh, that's a really cool science fiction concept that I haven't seen in anything else. That is just sort of yeah. a one or two time bit in this movie. Uh, again, yes. great. Like you could do an entire episode of something about that. Go on. Well, I want to, I was going to talk about the goo some oh, more. Well, and then let's talk, talk about the goo the, work. the crew reactions because the, we we go through goo. Tim going through that whole thing and it is such a like uh, irrefutable thing, you know, they once you go through it with Tim, then you know what the other actors have gone through when they appear yes. on that that beam. And so it it opens it up for comedy. Yes. And this is where I don't know if you this is a good place to talk about editing in this film, but by the time 
you get the the rest of the crew transported up to the spaceship. You get their individual reactions to this. Yes. We already went through it with Tim. Yeah. And now we get to see Sigourney Weaver. We get to see Alan Rickman. And they're all having variations of the same, like, body shaking. What the fuck just happened? I, you know, went through something. This is clearly real and I didn't think it was. And then you have Sam Rockwell. Uh, just, like... From this moment on, his character is ramped up like he's the only one. I guess he's not really playing the comedy. He's playing drama for sure, but he's the hammiest one, and it is so funny to watch. He he said uh, Sam Rockwell said that he based his performance as a guy who is just constantly freaking out as uh, like he, he based it off of John Turturro's character in Miller's Crossing, Bill Paxton's character, Private Hudson in Aliens. Uh, like th- characters who are just sort of famously losing their shit and and falling apart <laughs> because they're in over their heads. Yeah, yeah like they, you know, d- d- Tim has tried to convince them this is real back back in L.A. They don't agree with him. You know, they don't believe him. But then they get curious and go to find, you know, go to try and go after him and are transported up to the ship. But yeah, they all come in one by one. And then the the door open, like they're standing there and they're all stand like unable to move, just so shocked. And then we just hear these like alien noises and the door opens and these three horrible <laughs> octopus creatures carrying like whirring, whizzing, proby type things come up to them and are running these, you know, waving these things in their faces and gibbering at them in some horrifying alien language. And they're all still standing completely unmoving, (laughs) just their eyes, just eyes twitching around uh, like, none of this is being played for greater slapstick effect and it's so much better that they just do it this way and then eventually you know uh, then there's the release there there's all this like you know in a way that like again goes to the the text the reality the textures of reality that they've set up in this movie where like yeah i i believe that they would just stand still frozen at the sight of these creatures after the experience they've just been through but you need a release after you know all of this stuff is going on and when tim comes in right behind them saying oh hey you know welcome aboard guys Sam Rockwell just <laughs> lets out the longest, loudest screech in the world. Uh, he, but his eyes stay the same. They are still like it's just his mouth. Op- <laughs> he is still standing completely still. His mouth just opens, <laughs> and he screams. <laughs> I, I also. Uh, you know, okay, we'd be remiss then if we don't mention that uh, Tony Shaloub has been fired up slightly later than the rest of them because he was buying snacks. Yeah. He lands, the goo comes off, and he just kind of smiles and goes, yeah, that was a hell of a thing. Which, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of just incidental lines in this movie that live rent-free in my head, and that is one of them. Just, oh, that was a hell of a thing. <laughs> Not phased at all by what he's seen. Um, oh, Also, just, I, I want to... Take a moment too to just mention Tim Allen's performance in this moment, uh, and and for the next couple scenes, yes, where like I, I feel like in another Tim Allen movie there'd be a sort of like sense of gloating or you know like yeah. uh, I told you so, yeah. But he yeah. is so gleeful to have his friends along yes. for this adventure. Like, oh my god, see, I told you, come yes. on, we're gonna have a great time. Yes, and it's such a joyful. And I never thought I'd say these words after eight years. It's such a joyful version of Tim Allen that yeah. I really, really enjoy. It, it, no, there's a glint in his eye. It, it is. It is. He is 
walking that fine line that he has never really that he never really walked at least for us on home improvement where <laughs> there's no ha 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 to it at all it's right. just he he is he has finally achieved more power he has got the world's <laughs> biggest hot rod and it's not him drunk on power in the way that kind of makes us cringe and be scared like it is just he is this because this is the realization of everything. Like the only thing that he wants in the world is to actually be the captain of the the NSEA protector, and it it finally has happened for him. And and it's also when you really break it down and look at it, like he has come back from his first trip to space. He is totally shocked and blown, you know, blown out. He has no idea. He goes, he gets the rest of the cast. He's like, oh, it's great. You got to go up there and do it. They go back up to the ship like <laughs> five minutes after him. But by the time they get yeah. there, he's like showered. He's wearing his uniform. He knows everything and everybody. He's like, showed, it's like he's been up there for a week and it's fine. I don't give a shit. It's great. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, Yeah, but no, his, his, the sense of pride that he has in everything and the sense of kind of, you know, uh, how much this means to him. It's it's almost as though after Home Improvement, it was like, Mr. Allen, you're our last hope. We need you to host our tool show. Tool time is real. This is, this is Al. You see that this man standing behind this fence here, he is here to give you advice on everything you need. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. An alien race of Al's would be fucking amazing. I kind of want to see that movie. The, the thing is, look, now we've come up with a really great science fiction contest, uh, concept. A, an alien race of Al's, the thing is, their society would be in perfect shape. Introducing... One Tim to it would be the harbing, harbinger of dis, uh, you know destruction. They'd have to like it would. It'd be the inverse of Galaxy Quest. Well, th- then the setup for Galaxy Quest is it's, it's is a pebble of sand in a Swiss watch. They've they've brought Tim in and he's destroying their society. So then a, a team of the Al race have to go and find Patricia Richardson and be like, <laughs> "You're our just last hope." Slightly just. Touch him on the shoulder and go, come over this way for a little bit, Tim. <laughs> you, you, we, we need you to just give him the look. That is the only thing that can stop him. <laughs> oh, man. The, yeah, so, but there's so much good stuff of them walking around up on the uh, up on the ship. Tony Shalhoub yeah. is another another line that lives rent free in my head. Is is there? Everyone's marveling at everything and looking around. And Tony Shalhoub is just looking at the floor. And he's going like, "Man, how do they get these floors so clean?" Uh, <laughs> Definitely a high thought. Yes. Oh, de- without question. Without question. Um. Uh, yeah, so they they they're they are not act, they're on the ship they're on the sp- it, that is docked at the space station on the blasted remains yeah. of the Thermians planet. They all take their places on the bridge, and Laredo, you know, is flying the ship out, you know, out of the dry dock to go out on this mission. And in one of the all time, well, well, hold on, hold on. I, before we skip over, I, I, there's the very important moment that. They all are. Tim. Tim's like, okay, we all take our places that we took on the TV show, mm-hmm. yeah. and they they all have to kind of assume the roles, the positions, and and um, you know, the Thermians have built the ship by watching the quote unquote historical documents. So sure. it's built to work exactly as they used to do it on the show. So it's a, an interesting play like an interesting concept to bring the audience into of like these actors don't know what they're doing but they know exactly what they're doing because they've done it their whole life but But, they don't have the real world confidence to know to do what they already know what to do it's 
kind of a mindfuck in a weird way. And what they were doing meant nothing to them at the exactly. time. They were just trying to get through a day on set. And Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. And also the fact that, you know, for most of the crew, with the exception of Tim Allen's character, they've all kind of been trying really hard to forget they were on this show. Yeah. They don't like thinking about the show. And now that the... Now they're in this situation where they have to engage with all the their memories of, of what being on the show was like. Um, so so when he sits down to to guide the ship, like he says, oh, man, I used to have this all figured out uh, exactly what you know each of these little things did. And like so there's this kind of thing going on. It's 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 kind of in the foreground and it's kind of not like there's a lot of stuff going on in the the actors that we're watching's heads of like, how do I play this moment where I, I step into the realization that as long as I do what I've always done, we'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be moving this real spacecraft out of this real spaceport. As long as I do what I did 30 years ago. <laughs> and, and the fact that also the, all, like all the entire Thermian crew has come to the, has come up to the, the bridge to watch them do this. Cause this is the, the biggest moment to ever happen in Thermian culture. So they are really like, they're they're acting. They're performing again, but with stakes. I mean, it just just layers on layers. Um, and Tim performs with the stake in a little bit here too. Uh, it, yeah, he does. Which which we should mention uh, because I actually that was another thing that lived rent free in my head as a kid. Uh, but as they're flying out, as Laredo is taking them out of the spaceport, the sh- the ship is just ever so slightly drifting to the right. It scrapes agonizingly against the side of the space station for a long time. I. It is it is one of the all-time great amazing bits of just it's this inspirational huge moment that then is awkward and funny. But it you, yeah. you, you sent me you sent me a thing recently, an excerpt from uh Quentin Tarantino's book that you're reading, and now everyone knows that you're reading it, about how during you know, in making Rosemary's Baby, there's one scene where Polanski insisted that that this character who's having a phone call be filmed with their face obscured by the door frame, and how in the theater you know, 800 people all kind of cock their heads to the right to try and see around the doorframe. I feel I would love to be in the theater for this scene in Galaxy Quest where where it first becomes evident <laughs> that the ship is drifting. And all of the ca- we see all of the cast members kind of like angling their heads a little bit to the right. And I feel like everyone in the theater wants that to happen, too. They're like, just, just, yes. get, just go around. The, the, this moment, I, I would say from the moment that the crew is beamed up, through this moment and and beyond for the rest of the movie like this little sequence here sets up the the magic of this cast this ensemble because they all we talked a little bit about they all have their different reactions when they're beamed up but when they're walking through the halls even they all have their own story going on yeah like stan rockwell has nothing to do while they're walking through the halls but if you watch him he's like slowly absorbing the reality of what's going on. I know I've used the word reality a little too much on this episode, but yeah, we all, um, we all have callback words. He, but you can, you can see the arc of his character going on of like, Oh my God, I'm actually part of this crew. I'm on an adventure with the, I'm part of the show now. And like slowly over the course of walking down the corridor, he goes from like shocked and horrified to exuberant. Yes. And it's hilarious to watch. And so in this moment, the, I think one of the main reasons that this ship moment works is 
there's not a lot of dialogue. As you said, there's this big, you know, bombastic score, this real glorious moment, and it just slowly starts to, you know, go sideways, both in terms of what's actually happening, but the way that, you know, they're they're filming it, editing it, you know, where you you just get the slightest glimpse of like, well, that doesn't seem exactly center. And mm-hmm. then you look at, you know, uh, the driver and he's like, oh boy. And then you cut to Sigourney Weaver, who's kind of like tilting her head a little bit. Yeah. And then Alan Rickman, that's just like, go to the right, go to the right. <laughs> and then Sam Rockwell chimes in and he's like trying to take the controls away. Like they're all playing very specific characters that are reacting to a very singular moment. And it's just... it all builds on each other and it's so much fun to watch yes yes it, it, yeah it, it 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 is a an epic moment and not epic in the 2010s internet sense but epic in terms of it is a spaceship flying out of a huge space dock <laughs> that that turns into a gag and that is that is interpreted by these very well-defined characters each in their own in their own unique way um, and that's when I, I, I don't ever remember, I, I probably, the first time I saw it, found it enjoyable, but I actually was laughing my ass off at uh, the sequence this time. And I think it was because I was able to appreciate what the fuck is going on with all of the different characters. And, and you you could just kind of like pick one person to watch this movies, you know, through their eyes and you'd have a, a completely different experience every time you watched it. Yes. Yes. Completely. Um, so they're underway finally, and we go to you know it's the it's dinner it's you know this big you know banquet dinner for everybody and uh, by the way it's you know the Thermians have kind of said we need you to or and Tim has also explained to his crew like oh they just need us to help negotiate Saris's surrender or something like they, he's given them the impression that this is just a low key mission <laughs> just a low key alien space mission that you guys didn't you knew none of this existed and now you're here but. They're at dinner with the Thermians, and this, the you know, they're, they're food replicators. They've programmed them to match the preferences of each of their races. And so Tim is eating this steak and a baked potato, and it's great. And Alan Rickman, who's, you know, he plays an alien character, is eating this bowl. Like, it's like a bowl of cockroaches or something that are, like, <laughs> alive. As a child, this was so upsetting to me. Like, oh, this poor man, he has to eat that gross thing, but they all get to eat the good thing. And I, like, in my head... I would think about this so much. I'd like lie awake at night and think like how, but how would Alan Rickman be able to get okay food? Well, maybe he'd say to them that like, well, in our time on the protector, we all learned to love Jason's uh, types of cuisine. And so we all eat that. And can you make that for me? Yeah. The Thermians probably made Alan Rickman good, normal food after that. Right. He got to eat something good. I poor little Truman. It was hard being me, dude. I, I, for a, for a, For a straight white kid in an upper middle class family in America, I had a real hard time of it. Um, anyway, but so they're at this dinner, chatting with the uh, about their mission with Mathazar, and they, you know, they ask, and he's I think explaining more about how much Galaxy Quest means to his society. And then there's some the question rises of like, wait, you guys had a, there was a commander before you, like what happened? And Mathazar goes. Oh, it was wrong of me not to tell you. Let's, okay, show show the video that we smuggled off of Saris's ship. And they show this video of the old commander being brutally tortured by Saris, demanding that he reveal the location of the Omega-13, which in the episode, the, the final episode of Galaxy Quest that we see at the start of the movie, the last thing that he says before this cliffhanger episode is activate the Omega-13. 
and the Thermians have built an Omega-13 into the spaceship. They don't know what it does. They know that it's an item of huge power that could potentially destroy the universe if you activate it. And Ceres wants it because he knows that they have this very powerful thing and is trying to figure out what it does. And he's torturing the old commander in, you know, trying to find this out. It is very disturbing. The old commander begs Ceres to simply let him die. Uh... The entire crew seeing this, their faces drop, and the next thing is just all of them running, trying to get to, like, trying to get off the ship and say, we're done, we're out, we're done with this. Um, This film, <laughs> PG, PG-13 film, marketed to children, marketed to children, like, trying to, like, the, the geniuses, the brilliant minds in the, in, in at DreamWorks, <laughs> the, you know, the smartest people on Earth are entertainment industry executives. Again, I'm not jaded or anything, but they looked at this movie and thought, you know what, we need to make this for kids. Hey. <laughs> but, so, again, underly underlying both the darkness of the world we're in and also the very real stakes, like, and not, not the technically fake steak that Tim Allen was eating, but they've gone from this gee whiz excitement. Oh, holy shit. We're on a spaceship and we're heroes to these people. And kind of all of them start to get into it and get on board with it to very suddenly the reality of what's happening comes crashing in. And it kind of mirrors at the beginning of the movie, how Jason is at the fan convention on top of the world. And then the reality of it, you know, him being made fun of without his knowledge or without the people saying it, knowing he's there in the bathroom. Like <laughs> it's again, that cycle of like, this is great. This is amazing. Oh no, wait, this is very real and very sad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's at that point that, uh, Saris calls in and Tim is facing him again. He has, uh, decapitated, uh, his underling, who had allowed uh, the torpedoes to hit him before, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. In, when in the first in the first yep. uh, encounter, yeah. Uh, and so we see, oh shit, this guy means business, and he's back, and he's gunning for, um, you know, Nesmith and his crew. Uh, shit's gonna go down. Yeah, and I think we should pause there for. Part two of Galaxy Quest for next week. Part two, the remaining two-thirds of the film Galaxy Quest. Um, <laughs> that is the right, I think that is the right move. We honestly intended to get further than this and did not. I, hopefully this will be a two-parter and not our first ever three-parter. It won't. I, I want to, I, what I, I do just want to like end on here is, again, speaking to yeah. the brilliance of the way this script is set up. They have gotten, you know, the, the cast of Galaxy Quest, the TV show, has been brought to the ship. They are initially like, wait, they think that we're astronauts, we're not, we need to go back. And Tim says, hey, this is an adventure, what are you going to do, go back and feed your fish? And everybody's on board. Then they realize, oh shit, no, we're going to die, we need to get off the ship. So they are all running and trying to get back to the pods, and the Thermians are like, what's going on, Commander? And Nesmith is like, "We, you got to get a bunch more pods, the rest of my crew is leaving. Uh, but then they're like, oh, well, we we can't send them now, we've reached Saris's ship. So, like... They like the the crew is checked out on this, but it's like no, you can't, now you can't leave. You are fully you have to deal with this guy now. You can't it's back out. A brilliant script calibration and to and, to just push them far enough to get into a situation that they now cannot get out of. 
And everything else that happens in the script to be covered next week, well, and it happens in the movie for that matter, everything else that happens is just flows from that. They're just going from crisis to crisis and the question of, okay, now send us home. Like, at no point do they all decide that they want to stay and fight. It's more like, we have no choice. We have to solve these problems or else we die right now. Like, they... And they, they at, at no point does anybody but Jason want to keep doing this. They are just yeah. forced to by circumstances. A perfect, brilliant film. Oh, boy. Well, stay tuned for part two of Galaxy Quest coming at you next week. Um, N- never give up on our podcast, and we will never <laughs> surrender to the forces of making short episodes <laughs> or not talking for an hour before we start recapping the plot. To be fair, we did decide this was going to be a two-part episode before we started recording. Yes, unlike previous two-part episodes. Yes, yes, this is <laughs> after after needing two episodes to cover the dense plotting of wild hogs, we knew that we would probably <laughs> need that for Galaxy Quest. <laughs> so, uh you're you're stuck with us for a little bit longer than expected. Uh let's all the rejoice and cheer. Yes. Yeah, the, the, our, our audience, much like the old commander of the Thermians, is begging us to let them die. But no, your your torment <laughs> shall continue. Uh, so I guess um, I'm going to save uh, usually what I what I outro with uh, for next week by saying if we didn't cover anything you want to. So there's going to be room to cover more. Woo. Uh, therefore, join us next week. And in the meantime, if you want to help people find this show... If you want to uh, help us make it, if you want to help us make the next show, which Ooh. we are just, I can smell it, I can taste it, I can hear it, I can see it, I can touch it. Yeah, I think you got all of it, but, but you, you, you can- do- I can sense it with my open third eye. But it's, it, it's, it's about one week further away than we expected, though, because we decided that this had to be two weeks worth of content. <laughs> If you want to do any of that to help us get there, uh, you can do so by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash gruntworkpod, where for as little as $1 per month, you can get access to our entire archive of Gruntwork Nights episodes, mini episodes. They're 30 minutes, um, and those will end at the end of Gruntwork, so get in there before those are, they're not going to be gone. You can, you know, pay a dollar at any point from here to eternity and get access to them, but um, you can join us for the last couple episodes if you want to yeah if, if you that, want get, get in <laughs> right at the sell. end that <laughs> hard sell really fell apart you you can you can drive uh you know all the way out to uh santa monica for a party and get there like 10 minutes before it ends you, you wanna you wanna do that <laughs> well if you don't want to do that then you can at least leave us a rating or review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts because the algorithms work in a way that those numbers help people find the show, and uh, I can't tell you how, but it does make a difference. So uh, if you like the show, that's a great way to help us get there. Um, or you can stop by to say hi to us on Instagram. I've been posting a few stories lately uh, trying to gauge uh, fan-favorite <laughs> home improvement episodes yep. for our Gruntwork series spectacular. Um, Still got more homework Or to you do. can reach out and let us know your, your long-form thoughts at our email address, gruntworkpodcast at gmail.com. Or, or uh, uh, you can get access to this episode yeah. and other information about it, as well as all of our episodes, over at our website, which is www.gruntworkpodcast.com. And until next week, when we bring you part two of Galaxy Quest, never give up, never surrender, 
I've been Landon Solano. I've been Truman Caps. And remember, when they're doing the ribbon cutting at the supermarket, right when, like, Jason goes back after, like, going back from his first trip to space and he runs up and is trying to tell them about space, it's really funny because they do this ribbon cutting and, like, four balloons drift up into the smoggy L.A. sky and it's just, it's great. That's a visual that lives rent-free in my head. Um, bye! Bye!